Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello, joystick wagglers. Before we get into this episode of Under Consultation, we have a very special announcement to make. UCP Live returns on Saturday, January 14th at the bonus stage in Croydon, where we're going to be splitting into two very distinct halves. The first of which will be Ash and I going through our favorite challenges from the first seven seasons and the reboot of Games Master. There'll be clips, there'll be quips, and a little bit of jokes and probably a few gags and stuff. Knob gags. Oh, 100% there'll be knob gags, yeah. And then when we get to the second half, we are going to do something very special and potentially very, very stupid. We're going to take some of those challenges that we've talked about in the first half of the show and we are going to recreate them live on stage. And if you're there, there will be a chance for you to get up and compete for a very, very special trophy. So yeah, so we're going to do some live challenges and you can be in attendance for them by getting your tickets to UCP Live 2.0, links for which are in the podcast description. And not only will those tickets get you entry to UCP Live 2.0, but there is a special combo ticket that will get you entry on that day to our friends, The Heart of Gaming, a massive retro arcade full of classic coin-ops and consoles, all free to play. And for those of you who are at UCP Live 1.0, well, uh, you'll certainly know how much fun that is. We basically just played Smash Brothers for ages, then played four-player Simpsons, and it was awesome. We finished it. Tickets start from £15, and numbers are limited, so do not delay. Get your ticket today. Links for which are in the podcast description below. So, without further ado, here is this week's episode of Under Consultation.
Greetings and welcome to our deep sea domain. This is Under Consultation, an episode by episode podcast type situation through the UK's greatest video game challenge TV show, Games Master. I am one of your hosts, Luke Cohen, and the future of this country is in the hands of men like me. And not sure if that's Dominic Diamond or Gabby Roslin, I am Ash Versus. This episode aired on the 23rd of January 1997. Destruction, Derby 2 and Evita top their respective charts, but we have a new number one at the top of the music charts as Tori Amos releases Professional Widow. Is this our first appearance of Tori Amos on Under Consultation? I think it is. I think it is. Not the first mention. I think we've talked about Tori Amos in the past, but I think this is her first number one in our timeline. Obviously, it topped the UK singles chart, which is why we're talking about it now, but it also did pretty well in Finland, Iceland, Ireland and Norway. Yeah, I think it was a remix of it like a couple of years later. And the only reason that popped up onto my radar, apart from you know re- reading about it online, is that when I went to YouTube to look at Tori Amos' professional widow, because it's, Tori Amos' like, career is not something I'm overly au fait with outside of the name. And I wanted to go and re-listen to this song to make sure that I did remember it. The actually first result, if you search for Tori Amos' Professional Widow, is that remix. And then the second result is a 2016 remaster of the song. It's almost like Brimful of Asher, in that you yes. never see the original anymore. It's always the Norman Cook slash Fatboy Slim remix. In some other bits of TV and music news, however, on January 19th, Madonna wins Best Actress in a Motion Picture, Musical or Comedy for her part in Evita, which is currently top of our UK box office here. And on January 20th, Daft Punk releases their debut studio album, Homework. Daft Punk was a single I actually had around this time. Well, I say I had, my brother had it and then I stole it off of him. And that was like my first exposure to Daft Punk's band. And I love, love, love that song. I'm more familiar with the second single from this album, Around the World. Because the music video, this was also when I was starting to spend more and more time at internet cafes. And I remember you could download clips of Around the World from that there internet and you could watch them. And they looped pretty well because the music video was very cyclical. The only other bit of TV news I wanted to note, but this is actually technically from our past. So we missed a week of Games Master because it didn't air on Boxing Day. That meant that we didn't really get to cover much of the TV news or the, you know, the, the Christmas schedule and things like that. But it means that we missed something that was pretty significant. And the only reason this cropped up in my mind is because I'm, I'm a cool kid. So I'm currently re-watching this year's Great British Menu competition. And the theme of that competition is 100 Years of Broadcasting. One of the chefs puts up a dessert that is based on the Only Fools and Horses episode, Time on Our Hands, which was the last episode of Only Fools and Horses at that point. And I was just talking to my wife about it. And I was like, when did that episode air? Because I think I remember watching that, but I'm not sure if I just watched it as it aired or I watched it on like a repeat later on, like maybe it aired in the 1980s or something. No, it aired December 29th, 1996. like the old days the best christmas present of all from bbc one what a plonker it literally was in our current timeline so i just wanted to make reference to it now because it drew 24.35 million viewers which is outside of the funeral of princess diana the largest tv audience of the 1990s I mean, it's entirely understandable, mate, because it's the end of an era. It is the final ever episode of Only Fools and Horses, and that's it. They never made another one. No, they, that was it. Do you remember when it came back? 
And no, (laughs) because this was the last episode, Luke. It's weird. I've got that Robocop trilogy box set that's got two movies and a really nice coaster in it. (laughs) This is the episode where they become millionaires. And it's great. What a perfect ending to Only Fools and Horses. So when they brought the show back, the first thing they did was remove all of their millions and put them back in the flats. You're like, oh, well, you've completely undone the nice thing that we had with time on our hands. Like the, the brilliant gag of Del Boy bought all of this bollocks to try and make themselves millionaires when the thing that they actually would have had to make them millionaires was in their garage all along. It's great. Yeah. It's a great little punchline. But Luke, let's keep this bit a little bit short because I've got a lot to say about this episode. I know you've got a lot to say about this episode, but also someone else has a lot to say about this episode. We are not tackling this Iron Man challenge alone. We have a guest for the first time since Series 2. Since, uh, since Maff in Series 2, uh, I think. And that was early doors Series 2 as well. Yeah, I can't even remember that episode anymore. But today we are joined by one Mike Chanel. Hello. He's co-editor and host of Outside Xbox. He's a gamer. He's technically a racing driver. And he is also the man behind probably the worst paladin in all of Dungeons and Dragons. That's true. That's true. <laughs> yeah. You've, you've, you've got me bang to rights there, Ash. <laughs> Welcome to Under Consultation. And also, I think the first person that has ever said, hey, if you want someone to come on the podcast. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. I'm a big admirer of what you, uh, what you guys do. And um, obviously a big fan of Games Master as well. So we got into a bit of a conversation on Twitter, didn't we? And I said... I'll happily come and talk about Games Master. It would be probably be my like mastermind specialist subject. Were you an early adopter of Games Master? Were you like series one, two, or did yeah. you come to it later? I think I caught like one episode of series one when I was a kid. Yeah, series two I watched a ton of. And then recently I've rewatched them all again. But what a fantastic show because and I, I think, you know, this is not an original thought by any means, but what I loved about Games Master and, and you know, in, in retrospect was the fact that it spanned such an exciting time in video games, right? It went from the sort of very early kind of 16-bit stuff across the kind of PlayStation and Neo Geo and all that kind of stuff, and then into kind of arcade Model 3, which is the stuff we'll be talking about today, and, and those sort of, you know, those really exciting consoles. So I, I think we'll never see a leap of the sort that we saw within the span of Games Master in gaming ever again, right? You know, graphics will improve probably and you know you could argue that vr is another big sort of step but it's not a a, it's not a step that is you know all-encompassing when it comes to gaming games master just i've got a ton of nostalgia for it a real fondness for it as a series and um i rewatched them all again recently um and uh and thoroughly enjoyed the experience so in prep for the for the book which just came out as well kind of amazing actually you know you think that first challenge of episode one is on mario brothers 3 and like that that first series is a lot of amiga games and like really early like pc stuff and then you know ducktales and mega man 2 and here we are, like, you know, halfway through series six, and it's Virtual Fighter 3. Because there's a news item in episode 14 that's like, Tekken 3's coming out. And I said to Ash, like, before we start recording, like, I can't believe Tekken 3's already in our timeline. That doesn't seem possible. I feel like we've only just had Tekken 2. What I think is interesting is probably if you look at Virtual Fighter 3, which was Model 3 arcade hardware, which was never really adequately sort of... Um, 
introduced to the, to the home. This may well be the best looking game that ever was on Games Master. You know, it, it cages shiny trousers um, in the final round of this episode. It's like that was that was like the pinnacle of visuals at, at the time. And I, I think probably running into season seven as well. I'm not sure there was much that sort of touched that, certainly in terms of challenges within the studio. But I, I think what I loved about the arcade specific episodes of Games Master as well was that that was the real cutting edge stuff and you know the stuff that you didn't have in your home and you, you know you look at the machine from this episode and it's one of those giant pedestal sort of sega arcade machines with you know a huge screen and and that was the kind of stuff that you know as a kid growing up in the north you know i went to the bowling alley and saw the odd the odd arcade machine there but you know this was a, a real treat for me to see these kind of cutting edge arcade machines on, on tv I'd have to go back and look, but I do wonder whether Virtual Fight 3 is the most sort of technologically advanced game they had for a, for a challenge. I think certainly arcade game. Mm. I mean, home games, we've got the first Gran Turismo just around yeah. the corner in Series 7. And certainly, like, as a home gamer, that was, and a PlayStation owner, that game was just kind of like, woo. Witchcraft. Absolute witchcraft, yeah. yeah. I grew up in Reading, like, so Berkshire way. And so I had the similar thing of, like, arcade machines. The most impressive arcade machine I think I've ever seen was the Sega Sonic the Hedgehog game, just because, oh, it's got a rollerball and, like... Wow. You saw one of those in the wild. That's amazing. I know, yeah. And in, in time as well. So a thing like this, I remember when they, they got the Super Street Fighter 2 arcade machine, and that was just like a mind-blowing thing, but never saw anything like this in mm. actual person. So again, episodes of this, like Games Master, are a real like nice window into that world I never really got to see in that time. I've seen since, but never got to experience in that time frame. Arcade culture just doesn't exist in the same way as it did back then. You know, like obviously home technology has now gotten to the point where it's virtually indistinguishable from anything they can put in an arcade. And it becomes more about sort of novelty games and things like that. There's a few exceptions, you know, like Cruise and Blast just came out on the Switch, but that was a game that came out in the arcade originally. So there's still... There are still some companies doing that, but it, it's not the same as it was. You know, it's not that, that sort of gathering your pocket money up and, and going to, to play something that just blew everything else out of the water. I remember at the bowling alley that I used to go to that had the arcade machines, I remember playing Daytona and then coming home and playing uh, Street Racer, which is a uh, Mode 7 game on my SNES. And my dad came in, you know, stood by the door and went, it's not quite the same, is it? And I'm like, no, <laughs> no, it's not. No. You know, stuff like Daytona, when you first saw that and Model 2, you know, textured polygons, 60 frames per second, you know, filling the screen, looking stunning. Yeah, arcades were like an exciting thing. And I think that was always a real highlight for me throughout Games Master, those kind of arcade challenges. You know, the Killer Instinct challenge with Rory Reed, who I sort of am somewhat matey with. He used to be a tech journalist and our paths crossed a few times. So, um, so yeah, it's funny seeing him on that. And also the um, Cracking Blokes challenge which was mm. the uh, Tekken 2 one with the five throw combo and all that stuff. So mm -hmm. all those all those challenges were really sort of the, the super exciting ones. But yeah, that whole the whole span of Games Master went from, you know, some some fairly simplistic video games to some pretty sophisticated stuff. I think that's one of the things I found really interesting about Series 6, especially when you talk about like the, the, the graphics of Virtual Fighter 3 and talk about how amazing it looks, has been Games Master's attitude towards 2D fighters. Like yeah. There was a review in, I think it's in Series 5, of X-Men Children of the Atom, mm. which I, I think is a, is a cracking little fight. I adore that game, a, yeah, yeah. I love it. It's absolutely amazing. But they were so mean to it because it's like pff, a 2D fighter. It feels a bit passe here when these like, you know, Tekken's available and things like that. It is amazing how they just really have focused so much on this 3D world that mm. they kind of look at Mortal Kombat now as this really archaic 
2D experience. Like, oh, we've got so much further past that now. Feels unkind when Mortal Kombat was so good to Games Master. Do you know what I mean? It's <laughs> yeah. part of so many previous episodes of the of the series. Again, it's it's that excitement, isn't it? It's that excitement of what a dynamic place the games industry was and also you know it felt like a a bit of a secret club right nowadays everyone plays video games and it's not you know it's not a revelation to say i play i play video games you know back in the day those those sort of technological leaps were were among a much smaller group of people who who were you know right rightly excited about the advent of full 3d graphics i don't even know if i had a playstation at the time this episode came out but games master gave me an opportunity to see these games in motion you know I, i read magazines voraciously specifically the games master magazine so i could so I was sort of conversant on a bunch of games that I'd never actually played, but Games Master and, and Bad Influence to an extent were an opportunity to to see those games in motion in a way that that sort of popped, unlike a, a magazine where it was a, a sort of single screenshot or two, you know, on a preview. I really credit, you know, I was I had a little Twitter exchange with Dominic Diamond um, around the launch of the book, and I, you know, I said, and I, I stand by it that I don't know that I'd be here doing what I'm doing without Games Master. I think. A lot of that is to do with, you know, the fact that the magazine was a really key part of my kind of upbringing and it really informed my writing style and kind of slightly, it was a slightly edgy, you know, for a, for a young kid, you know, 12 year old or whatever, it was a slightly edgy sort of magazine to be, to be reading. You know, I read it voraciously. It was only going to be a matter of time before I washed up at Future Publishing writing for video game magazines myself, which is what happened in way back in 2005. Um when I started at PC Format and was was reviewing games there. So that, that felt like a sort of logical thing. But even then going to YouTube and stuff, I think one of the key things for us is is to make our videos entertaining and amusing and have jokes in there, you know. And I think that was the difference between maybe a bad influence and a, a games master is that the, the humor was a, a really key part of it and, and it needed to be entertainment rather than just information. And I think that's something we carry with us in outside Xbox as well. Our list features, which are enormously successful, on the face of it, they're informative and they're teaching you something about video games. But actually for for us as as scriptwriters, that's definitely deprioritized compared to just sticking in some fun jokes and you know the odd knob gag in there as well. And you know it's it's very games master, maybe not quite as edgy as as Dominic. You know, so I think when I go back and watch Games Master, I see a lot of the style that we've developed on outside Xbox in in those shows, and um, it was really gratifying to read the book and about the kind of production. You know, now as someone who is technically, I suppose, in video production, to read about how this show came together and get that kind of behind the scenes look and, and understand that actually a lot of the same thought processes were going on when they were putting Games Master together that we we go through when we're when we're trying to create entertaining YouTube content. So yeah, I I definitely owe a, a bit of a debt to Games Master. I think it was cool to be able to say that to to Dominic on on Twitter. Sounds a bit weird, but yeah, it was a bit it was a big part of my childhood. Doing this show, I think Ash and I have said this before, but like having Twitter conversations with Dominic Diamond, and we were part of the 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 launch of the book, the launch of the Kickstarter. Mm. You know, we did like the first interview with him about that, and then we did an interview with him. But there was supposed to be the final interview on the Games Master he'd ever do, though he has done quite a few subsequently <laughs> since. I mean, I sort of like to kind of sit there and take sauce a little bit like, you know, we're in the book. Mm. And you sort of like take that moment, you sort of sit back and you're like, that was a huge part of my childhood. And now I'm sort part of, of the part history. of, yeah, part part of, of it in a way. And, that, yeah, that's a bit, and that's a bit of a mad thing, mm. but also a very humbling one. I absolutely destroyed the book in a, like a single evening, basically. I got it and just like read the entire thing over the course of about six hours when I definitely had other things I was supposed to be doing. <laughs> but I just couldn't stop. I couldn't put it down. Like I said, I kind of rewatched all the episodes in preparation for the book and it really, really enriched it because when they talked about, you know, 
behind the scenes moments of particular episodes they were fresh in in memory so i i really really enjoyed it and um obviously the background on a bunch of um you know the more controversial moments <laughs> for example you know the the christmas quiz episode mm. parts of it felt like almost a kind of right to reply sort of thing i think jack uh has done a really good job with putting that book together because he lets violet berlin say her piece right and she's part of that story as well because they were you know maybe not rivals in in her mind or maybe even not in games master's mind but it was it was part of the story wasn't it and as a viewer there were these two shows shooting for the similar sorts of things um so amazing that they got violet in there amazing that they managed to get hold of dexter and, and get him to tell his side of the story as well i thought it was really lovely hearing from dexter and it, obviously like it was not a not a, an experience he really wanted to revisit but at least he got to have his say about it you know and that's what i really like about the book it feels like almost reconciliation for a lot of stuff and similarly with the dave perry thing i think regardless of your 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 sort of um your love for uh for <laughs> for dominic i think dave does come across as a slightly more sympathetic character than maybe he appeared when it was left and it was just sort of radio silence you know he had his position and i, I can see why you know he felt like his career was riding on this this stuff you know if he's if he, he'd built a reputation so yeah i hope he's not too raw about it and and again brilliant that they they got him in the book because it wouldn't have been the same without him i think as, as dominic said welcome to games master where there's quite literally loads of people in atlantis today is it a a stalkers of dominic diamond convention b a stalkers of gabby rosland convention who've taken the wrong turn off the m25 or c a lot of people are wearing the same t-shirt for some kind of games master event type situation if you're very thick and don't know the answer to that one, we'll reveal it after today's news. There's quite literally loads of people in Atlantis today, and I'm, I'm going to pretend that I'm not thick, because I am a bit thick, but I'm pretty sure that none of them are the stalkers of Gabby Roslin convention who've taken the wrong turn off the M25. That would have been the option I would have gone with, but I, I've got a feeling that it's a different option. Most of them were too young to drive for a start. <laughs> is about seven years old from what I can tell. So yeah, I don't think they were taking the wrong turn off the M25. There were a lot of people in Atlantis. I feel like the secret would have gotten out if they'd let that many people into Atlantis. I don't know if you guys were familiar with the term Tetsujin before this show. I certainly wasn't. No, this, this was my first ex like exposure to the idea of them. I mean, I read in the in the book um, that it was it was the result of some sort of googling or yahooing or whatever it was at the time. What a brilliant concept for an episode, right? One of the things we've had and that we've really loved is these idea of an episode long challenge. It really gives it time to breathe, and we've obviously had the Virtua Cop challenges, uh, the Virtua Cops challenges, actually, because we had the Virtua Cop two, two console, uh, two arcade machines, two guns, one person. Next week we've got Die Hard Arcade, an episode long challenge with a husband and wife duo wearing vests. It's all, it's all a lot of fun, and I like it because it gives a challenge a chance to breathe. I also like it because it means we have to write a lot less notes on games. <laughs> yes, true, true. And also, this isn't, I think this is our first time, it's not even an episode-long challenge, it's a day-long challenge. Oh, like, yeah. This is an episode where we've got flashbacks to earlier in the day and just like lots of montages. Because the thing with, you know, doing a, a Virtual Fighter 3 challenge like this, and we've kind of had this across the run of Games Master, fighting games often can look the same. Like if you do sort of like five rounds of something, you're like, well, a lot of this is following a similar formula now. To do a hundred of those might get quite repetitive quite quickly. So I, I think the the way they structure this episode and put it together is actually a really smart way of doing it. You know, I'm watching this episode at the age of twelve 
I'd have just assumed there was 100 people there mm. and everything was completely above board. As now an adult, it doesn't look like there's 100 people there, even if they've only got 50 on set. I don't think they've got enough space for another 50 behind mm. the cameras. Again, speaking as a video producer, the way this episode flows and is put together is brilliant. And I, I one of the, the quotes that sort of stood out to me in the book was that allegedly this was uh, Jane Hewland's favorite episode of the show ever. Yeah. And it's clearly because from a production standpoint, it's so well put together, so tightly choreographed almost. You know, they even have time to squeeze in a, a separate celebrity challenge in the middle and it all flows and it all makes sense. So it's a real it's a real triumph, definitely. Sometimes these episode long challenges do have an air of record breakers or, or you bet mm. this is one of those episodes and it's just like you just it, Dominic Diamond could be Matthew Kelly just going back and checking on how this kid's doing eating a hundred pies. Absolutely. I agree. The sense of scale quite often a Games Master Challenge would be over in three minutes, right? And and this is you know, it feels like a packed twenty four minute show and Obviously, there are sort of things that are trimmed back as a result of it. And, you know, there's no feature. I always used to love the features and, you know, the news and things like that. That is all kind of streamlined out to serve this narrative. But the narrative hangs together. I'm sure not all of it was real. But as an episode, it it, it works perfectly. And I love the the thing where they, you know, they begin the show and, and they've, they've got the challenge in progress. And then they cut back to Dave Perry, presumably at sort of six in the morning, the only person on set, basically keeping an eye on this challenge as it progresses. The Japanese are mad, generally, especially about video games. Expert players over there are celebrities adored by millions. The biggest sensations of all are the masters of Japan's most popular game series, Virtua Fighter. Known as Tetsujin, or Iron Men, they have earned their fame by successfully completing the Iron Man initiation rite, in which they take on 100 expert Virtua Fighter players in a row. They have to beat at least 90 of them, a feat achieved without rest or sustenance. Only five people have passed this test, and last June the nation came to a standstill as Tetsujin's Bun Bun Maru and Kiyosawu fought on live TV in the final of the Grandmasters tournament to establish the ultimate champion, a title won eventually by Kiyosawu. Coming out of that, the, the news piece that they have there, and again, sort of like putting myself into that seven-year-old mind, I'm seeing something. Imagine a world in which this sort of thing is broadcast live on TV, like sports uh, here in the UK, like, a, you know, the, the World Cup final is, is presented live here. Like this news item presents you this idea that over in Japan, that far off land that you'll never get to go to, and I, I didn't until I was in my mid-30s, but over there, you can watch, tune into a TV channel, you can watch these people playing games competitively live. And I don't know about you two, I can't imagine a world where we'll ever get to see people playing video games competitively live. Never happen. It'll never happen. <laughs> it'll never catch on i don't think as a kid again you know like really having a lot of cultural understanding of japan in general i just saw it as this video game utopia where video games were (laughs) understood the way i understood video games obviously it should have been on tv and like treated like sport and you know also totally baffling as, as a culture for me as a kid like totally alien and when i finally did go to japan back in 2005 as a, as a sort of you know 20 something year old that culture shock is real when you get there it, it feels totally different and it's amazing and refreshing because of it the home of so many brilliant sort of video game manufacturers and developers um, and the home of Sega obviously so it felt like this kind of like far off wonderland of video games when I, when I was watching this episode I mean I was an early importer because uh, I think I, I mean I know I'm older than Luke and I think I'm a few years older than you by the time we get to this point, I'm still in school, but I have a part-time job and I am terrible with my money. Like I'm great with my money because I can save up to games pretty quickly, but the concept of long-term savings, 
never happened. I had my SNES with an action replay so I could get import games for that. And I got my PlayStation mod chipped so I could buy import games for that. Definitely buy them. (laughs) (laughs) But it was the concept of getting like an import copy of Tekken 3. And I got the Japanese copy. I could have waited a little while and got the American copy and I could have read everything and there would have been no mystery at all. But there was something really kind of magical about that wall of Japanese text and the announcers being in Japanese and not having a blues clue what (laughs) the hell they were saying. It just made it feel special. And I get that vibe watching that little news piece about the Tetsujin and the Ironman tournament in Japan. It's just like this feels exciting, a little bit dangerous because it's not a common alphabet. You can't go, oh, I can kind of work out what that might be. Again, it's another thing that's changed since that that era of Games Master is that obviously Japanese games are still big, but in terms of the cultural impact, you'd say that Western games now have a comparable cultural impact. Whereas at the time, you know, Nintendo and Sega were both huge Japanese corporations and the really exciting stuff was coming out in Japan first and then it would come out in America and then about six months later you get it in in England so yeah I've, I've still got that kind of excitement about uh, about those old sort of Japanese games and even the stuff like the the Neo Geo which felt like a you know a totally removed from anything I would be able to uh to afford as a kid but synonymous with Japan and and Japanese fighting games and action games so that sort of magic I'm glad I've I'm glad I've got that memory of of Japan as like I said a sort of video game utopia when I went it was around the time of the, the the rugby world cup was there so they had redone a lot of signage around to have more English on it because, like, as you said, like it's, you know, it literally is a completely different language, a different alphabet and everything. It's hard to kind of figure out unless you've got like a really good guide with you. And so like even when I, like, I was there and I was saying to my wife, I was like, this feels like there's a really touristy version of Japan. Like we wouldn't have had if we'd have come, say, four years earlier or something like that. When we went out to Kyoto, that was like, it really felt like going out to Japan. But that's kind of where I really dig news items like this. Like this is late. Na- late 90s Japan and it's like getting to see it and it just feels really cool not only that I mean I got massively excited for this anyway because it's got the theme tune to Invasion of Astro Monster as its backing <laughs> tracks that is a deep cut well done <laughs> so, so I was like as soon as that like bam, 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 I was like oh brilliant all right I'm already in this is the best episode I've ever seen because it's got that theme tune on it so like I I, I love that aspect of it again the thing that it served to do for a kid who loved video games was show you the bit of Japan that you were really interested in you, know, you can watch the holiday program on BBC2 and they go to Tokyo and it would be lovely colourful stuff and things like that but what I wanted to know was about the video games and the idea of this sort of video gaming subculture which was parallel to the video gaming subculture in the 90s in the UK and America but it growing in totally different ways and in totally different directions. On the holiday programme Sue Carpenter never went to Akibara you know exactly. it was just always you know here's a very very historical building here's the sumo here's the geisha da, 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 da. Exactly. it never yeah. went here's the really sketchy part of Japan where you also have a vending machine selling used underwear you never got to see that on bbc one at 7 30 <laughs> but yeah like uh, akihabara as a sort of pilgrimage when i went in 2005 again it, it felt like those kind of glory days of, of japanese technology being so far ahead of of western technology were kind of gone but it was still a kind of an amazing experience and you know a real assault on the senses you know the lights the screens the seven story tall shops full of manga you know all that kind of stuff i had to make a pilgrimage there and actually when i was over there i bought a, a white playstation psp uh, handheld which wasn't available in the uh, 
the West at the time. So that felt like a kind of special, special gaming moment for me. Uh, uh, when we got there, like uh, I, I said to my wife, I was like, two first things we're doing. We're going to go to Akihabara and I want to go to the Godzilla Hotel. Like That was like my first two things I really wanted to do. Nice. And so I got to do those. And the thing that my wife hated the most about Japan, and she actually refused to go in there, was going into a pachinko hall. The, the noise, she was like, I can't go in. It's yeah. just, it's too loud. That is too, too much an overwhelming sound to go into. I put my foot in it, like culturally. Again, you know, my my total lack of, of sort of understanding of the culture. But I got into a pachinko hall. I was like, wow, cool. And I took a photo. And one of the members of staff came over and goes, please don't take a photo because <laughs> people in here who probably don't want to be seen to be gambling in a pachinko parlor. I didn't realize it was this sort of almost like embarrassing thing to be to be engaged in. I just thought it was cool and loads of noises and strange things that I'd never seen before. So yeah, a bit of a cultural oaf, unfortunately, but I had a great time in Japan. Ash, like we were just saying, you know, with Mike said earlier, that he doesn't know about Tetsuji. I hadn't heard it before this episode. What would like? Did you know about this sort of thing before the episode started? Smooth link. I appreciate it because I've got a couple of paragraphs on Tetsujin here. You're welcome. I did not know anything about Tetsujin at the time because. We're still in early doors of internet. And also, as I think uh, we kind of discussed in Twitter DMs, I sucked at Virtua Fighter. In the time between our initial discussion and now, I have played quite a bit of Virtua Fighter 3. Good news. I still suck at it. I'm still (laughs) absolutely terrible. But I did do some research because obviously this is early doors pro gamers, as we've mentioned. This entire kind of concept of the Iron Man tournament started with Virtua Fighter 2. There were six Iron Men, six Tetsujins originally, one of which is the one that Games Master have flown over for this challenge. Sega didn't just kind of give these guys an honorific title like a golden joystick, like a Nintendo champion, like a Sega champion. They toured them. They went on tours around the country. They held special exhibitions. It was like the snooker. It was like where you get those exhibition matches. They treated these guys like wrestling house shows where they would just take them around and pitch them against each other or pitch them against local talent. It was wildly popular, not only televised, but as a live event. And the original six Tetsujin, uh, they were Kaisayo, who is here today, Bun Bun Maru, whose name was a take on onomatopoeia because it's kind of based on the sound that Wolf makes when he does his swinging around and around move. You had Kashiwa Jeffrey, called so because he played main as Jeffrey. Ikebukuro Sarah, played main as Sarah. Shinjuku Jackie, main as Jackie, also from the Shinjuku district. And KK Yakuze, played as Shun. Some of them took their names from characters. Some of them took them from the regions they were representing. And this wasn't just something that stuck with them through the arcade boom, because obviously it started with Virtua Fighter 2. Here we are, Virtua Fighter 3. Even though the players changed, and in fact the title changed, they're still doing the same now with Virtua Fighter 5 still. And I'm sure as and when things go on and we get a Virtua Fighter 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, maybe another Fighters Mega Mix, maybe another Sonic Fighters, Sega will continue to find a way to recognize the value of these star players, which I think is really great because they were some of the first. Yeah, like you say, the the sort of birth of fighting esports and long before Evo was on the scene, presumably. And this was something that naturally sprung up. And what an what an interesting challenge, rather than a sort of tournament with brackets or anything like that. It was just a it was an endurance effort. I, I had no idea about the the touring. That's cool though. Can you imagine like showing up to watch these people absolutely clean house? But yeah, I love it as a concept. They should bring it back. They should bring back Tetsujin for for Evo twenty twenty three. It's a tough old challenge. Mm. The idea of doing 100 fights, you've got to win at least 90 of them in order to to get the ranking. 
without any form of sustenance or a break or water or anything like that. I mean, like, you know, our lad here gets a break because he gets interviewed a couple of times. And I think, you know, imagine they would took several different breaks throughout the day. That's a long old time to be playing the same game over and over and over again. Like, I applaud anyone who does Twitch streams where they are, like, speedrunning a game. Like, I applaud anyone who can do that because I don't think I've got the patience for it. Yeah, it requires a, a level of focus that I think is is certainly well beyond me. I've got a very short attention span, so I'd probably last about seven matches and then want to play something else. There were a lot of changes in Virtual Fighter 3 compared to 2, so they added this dodge button, which made a, a big difference to how people played. And I think even guys within this Iron Man challenge in the UK that were used to Virtual Fighter 2, they'd still have a bit of a hill to climb in terms of the dodge button. Also, the arenas are really weirdly shaped. One of the uh, later bouts where there's a ring out where the Tetsujin ends up falling out of the ring is on this sort of slanted roof, which really is a strange thing to have in a fighting game where one person can have a kind of high ground and the, the points of contact and the, the hitboxes and stuff will be not lined up in the way you'd expect. So what I do like about Virtua Fighter 3 is that I remember trying for ages on Virtua Fighter 2 to, to kick the old guy into the water and never quite getting him far enough off the raft. Whereas the little beach level in Virtual Fighter 3 finally delivered on that dream of like yeeting an elderly man into the sea and, and him probably dying, I guess. Achieving every child's dream. Exactly, yeah, exactly. Gotta get that drunk old man into the sea. I mean, this isn't that comes up in next week's episode when they have that preview of Tekken 3, but one of the things that Don mentioned about it there is like, the combos are great, but it doesn't have that different stages of level that Virtual Fighter 3 yeah. has. So maybe like people won't flock towards that as much because that was like this revolutionary thing for for three it didn't stick around long though i think they they kind of rode back on that for virtual fighter four and five I think it was a little too unpredictable and wild but it's cool in that game and virtual fighter 3 is almost like the lost sort of virtual fighter game you never really had a home conversion or even a port on more recent consoles you know that did it justice basically i mean i've got my dreamcast set up over here that yeah. was how I played it in preparation for this. And my yeah. Dreamcast has been in a box for about a year at this point. And I'm like, oh, best dig that one out. It's wild that it took until the 128-bit era for us to get a version. I may be wrong, but there was a there was a sort of team battle version for the for the Dreamcast as well, right? What you ended up with was, you know, the version we see here is Virtual Fighter 3, the arcade game, the original version. You mentioned the dodge button. A weird one is that dodge button was a very late doors addition to the game. Really? The game's producer was interviewed in late 1995 and he was talking about some of the changes that were coming in but he was also talking about the problems of producing a game that actually moves in three dimensions and the problems it causes for players in keeping a sense of perspective and their relative location and he says Virtua Fighter 3 is going to be a three button game mm. and that bloody changed yeah, pretty quickly. <laughs> we had Virtua Fighter 3, there was meant to be a Saturn port We've talked about this on an earlier episode, but basically they were convinced they could make a decent port on the Saturn with a proviso, the proviso being a 3D accelerator cartridge for the uh, Sega Saturn. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because this is Sega. They love putting bolt-on hardware onto their consoles, which is how you end up with the Mega Drive Tower of Power, Mega CD, Mega Drive, 32X, Master Converter. <laughs> Sonic, Sonic and Knuckles with Sonic 3 in it. <laughs> yeah. The weird modem thing all of them up there, and suddenly it's taller than the CRT television. Essentially, that cartridge made it as far as prototyping, and then it was cancelled. But they were still insistent they could make Virtua Fighter 3 for the Saturn. And then that was cancelled, and no official reason was being given, but I suspect it's because the Saturn at that point, as it almost is now, was dead on its arse. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
And they were already looking to what might come next because they'd realized they weren't going anywhere with this. It's tragic. I've become a recent Saturn owner myself and I can see exactly where the hardware flies. And it ain't these 3D games. Hmm. Apparently, staff from Core Design, when visiting Sega in Japan, actually saw the prototype running with the 3D accelerator card. They have said, this is not vaporware. This is real. This was actually a thing. But as far as I know, no prototype boards have actually appeared in the wild since. It's not one of those pieces of hardware that has escaped into the wild, like the Nintendo PlayStation and other various bits that have mm. emerged in recent years. It would be amazing if someone could dig one of those out. So if you're familiar with sort of FPGA boards and things like that, it might be something that could actually be sort of replicated and emulated to quite a high degree of accuracy. If it came out on Dreamcast, it must have been three years after the arcade version, maybe longer, I guess. Virtua Fighter 3 was unveiled in 1996. Here we are, beginning of 1997. Mm. Virtua Fighter 3 TB, you were right for the team battle, came out right at the tail end of 99. It was one of the launch titles for the Dreamcast in Japan. It sold huge amounts in Japan because Mm. the Japanese love Virtua Fighter and they love the Dreamcast. Didn't do so well in America. It was meant to be a launch title in North America, but it was actually delayed when it eventually came out. It had a number of bug fixes from the Japanese version, but it just didn't take off because other games had already come out that had surpassed it in accessibility and graphics and playability. Mm. The version that you are most likely to play now, be it with a disc and a Dreamcast or under emulation or whatever you want, is going to be Virtua Fighter 3 Team Battle. Mm. And it's the version that I played. And all the bug fixes in the world didn't help me. <laughs> it's quite a technical game. I, you know, I, I've struggled with Virtua Fighter in the past. You have to be very measured and intentional with your inputs. You know, button mashing will not get you very far in a, in a Virtua Fighter game. It just seems like a game designed to, to punish that sort of button mashing. Dom rounds us off with this, uh, this news item by saying that they've flown this guy over from Japan to the United Kingdom to face off against 100 of the UK's best players. Or uh, as Dominic explains in the book... Most of the challengers were kids from my mum's drama school. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's 30 true. of them who played him a few times, joined by 20 others. Yeah, well, you know, TV, it's not all real, <laughs> is it? They trot that first kid up and you're just like, there is no way that kid is a virtual fire pro. <laughs> it's got to be past his bedtime and it's probably only about 6am. So it's pretty funny when they, they present it that way. You can tell the really scrappy players, you can hear them. You can hear the joystick just going <laughs> ballistic and all the buttons being mashed. <laughs> yeah. And the Tetsujin himself just sat there stoic, going boom, boom, boom. Four button presses, they're off the side of the ring and that's it, fight over. It's that launch throw into grabbing them and driving them into the ground. All those kids were probably hearing those three clicks of the buttons and the stick, <laughs> like in their waking nightmares later on. And it goes back to what you were saying about like fighting game stuff can look quite repetitive. This guy had a strategy and his strategy was to pull that move out pretty much any opportunity he got. But oh, yeah. I bet this guy played as Ken on Street Fighter. That's yeah, all I'm yes. going to say. He knew how to work that system. But we do go back to that 6am start. Dominic's not there, but Dave is. He basically meets a Tetsujin, meets a Tetsujin's interpreter, and the games master issues the challenge. Greetings. You, my challenger, will today take the first Iron Man test to be held in the UK. In accordance with the strict laws of this ancient event, you will have to beat 90 out of the 100 opponents I've gathered to play you here today. You'll have no second chances. There'll be no excuses. 
90 must fall. Well, that felt weird. I don't normally introduce the Games Master. I, feel <laughs> like I just trod on your territory there, Luke. Sorry, mate. Dave's moment of glory, isn't it? Finally, he's hosting the show, and it's because he's the only one prepared to get up at 6am. Fair play. I, you know, I think he he deserved his moment in the sun. I don't know if it was like a scintillating performance. I would have loved to have seen him play. I doubt he would have tried. Reputation on the line, he wouldn't have wanted to get absolutely owned by another player. Five episodes after he was humiliated. <laughs> yes. I find watching Dave Perry in this episode just in general and his body language and his facial expressions really, really interesting. The rot had clearly set in whenever this was filmed. You know, Dom kind of says that, you know, like, this has been going on since the crack of dawn, but I wasn't here for it. I'm far too important. Someone who is important is Dave Perry, so he's been here since the crack of dawn. And it just cuts across to Dave Perry, who's got this look of, like... <sighs> yeah, this again. It is a funny joke. It is genuinely, like, I love the... I was far too important to be here at 6am. I think that's a good gag. But obviously, like, you know, it was so tense between the two of them. There was just no way that Dave was going to take that in the spirit that, you know, it should have been intended. I genuinely think Don would have made the same joke if it had been Rick there, yep. if it had been uh, Derek, Derek Lynch there, yep. especially if it had been Derek there. Mm. He would have made that same joke regardless of who was stood in that spot. Yeah, it's a solid gag, isn't it, basically? It's just a really it's a good joke. It's like a lot of the gags we've had where Dave is the punchline, where he talked about Dave being the inspiration for Sonic the Hedgehog. And Dave's like, yeah, it's that quest for gold. It's because I'm fast, I'm sleek. And they, and Dom's response is, no, it's because you run around wearing nothing but red trainers. <laughs> he'd have made the same joke about Rick. He'd have yep. made the same. He'd especially made the joke about Kirk. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And like, I think for Dave as well, you know, going by the, the comments he makes about this episode in the book, this was a big thing for him. He still to this day doesn't really know why. He says that Jane Hewland asked specifically for him to host this, but has said, like, I don't know why Dom didn't host this episode. The way he looks at it is that he is the host of this episode. Mm. He is the unofficial third host of Games Master behind Dominic Dexter. Like, he thinks that he is the main man of this episode. I don't quite think he... He doesn't feel like the host of this episode. Dominic Diamond is still very much the host of this episode. Mm. And it's kind of like Dave considers himself the co-host of Series 3. Whereas I watch Series 3 and I'm like, no, I think Dexter is the host and you are the commentator. Mm. You are the only commentator, but that is your role. I would never say that you two were the co-hosts of Series 3. You know, if they'd open the show with Dave Perry at 6am, then you could argue that he was presenting it. The show opens with Dominic Diamond. The show closes with Dominic Diamond. Yeah, It's hosted by Dominic Diamond. But he had his chance to present links, basically, which I guess he would never have done otherwise. It doesn't feel like a bad fit. I guess Derek Lynch would have would have been fine as well. He was a Namco boy. Yeah, it's true. It's true. There would have been a contractual conflict there. That's it's like, true. we can't have our Namco guy going there and commentating on a Sega game. <laughs> yeah, it's true. The point you're making there, I think Dave is the safest pair of hands. If, mm. if Dominic Diamond is not hosting this from the very start in terms of I'm not going to be there for 6am to, to greet him and do this and watch all of the challenges, you wouldn't put Kirk in this situation. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> it would be hilarious. It, it would probably would have been hilarious, but Kirk's the last person you put An in international there. cultural incident, maybe. <laughs> but it would have been funny. Alternative situation it's dave and kirk oh gosh it's, it's the lineup we never got one of them would have been dead before the end of taping That's and true. i don't know which one it would have been <laughs> honestly kirk's a big guy though but then dave perry's probably wily so. scrappy yeah scrappy yeah <laughs> well 100 players certainly sounded tough but our tetsujin was far from intimidated do you think you can do it just <laughs> 
No problem. He can beat 120, 200. No problem at all. No problem. You're going to do it easily. Okay, then. They don't think so. Take him to the machine. Let's get it on. On this, uh, the, the Tetsujin that we've got here, I did want to read this passage from the, from the book because I thought this was quite funny and, and quite amazing, really. So this is from Carl Prince, who was a researcher on the show. There was a dial-up modem in the corner of the office, and as a contestant researcher, I'd go to sites like Yahoo and just look online for gamers. A lot of them were the first to create websites. Through the research, I found our Tetsujin, a guy who could beat anyone. So I told Johnny, and we agreed to bring this guy in and have him beat 100 kids back to back. I worked night after night trying to track him down and arrange for him to be on the show and fly him to London. I couldn't meet him at the airport, so I asked one of the other researchers to go and take him to an arcade. I got this phone call back at the office saying, I've just had him play two people in the arcade. He lost both times. Johnny paused for a moment and went, great. Yeah, that's brilliant. Well done. And I'm thinking, shit. Slightly panicking, I made a dash to go and meet him myself. He couldn't speak any English, but I made out what he was saying and he was basically tired. So I took him to another arcade myself and I got all the kids around to play him. He beat every one of them. And I was like, thank f for that. <laughs> I can imagine if you just got off the flight from Tokyo Narita and you're bloody exhausted, the last thing you want it's to do is go straight to an arcade <laughs> with sensory overload and try and beat a bunch of kids at um, Virtual Fighter. I wonder what he was playing as well, because being a Japanese resident, he was presumably playing a lot of Virtual Fighter 3 at the time, clearly well practiced in that game. But presumably that arcade game wasn't necessarily in a lot of places in the uk so it may have been that they were playing on virtual fighter 2 and there's some local kids who were you know pretty good at it i don't know enough about the vagaries of when those arcade machines arrived in the uk but i know the delays for japanese arcade machines to come over to the uk were massive at the time it would be like six months to a year before you'd see something that, that was already you know popular in in japan over over in the west i bet sega world would have had one at yeah. least one. They got a cheap shortcut, really. Mm, that's true. They just stick one in there, carry on luggage, and <laughs> bring it over, and it's fine. Dave does do that brief interview at the beginning, the first talk by the interpreter. Basically, the Tetsujin goes, I can beat 100 people, I can beat 200, no problem at all. And I love that the 100 players in Bucky O'Hare is all do a proper panto boo. <laughs> yeah, it's good, isn't it? Yeah. And I would love to think the interpreter suddenly has to go, no, pantomime, and has to explain yeah. the entire culture of pantomime to this poor bugger. Why are they booing me? <laughs> yeah. I mean, he probably could have beaten 200 people. He said he could have beaten 200 of them, yeah. Yeah, 200 kids, yeah. <laughs> this interview was perilously close to being no trouble from Series 3, which I really oh, yeah. thought we were going to no get to as well. Oh, yep. I'm glad they dodged that bullet. I thought it was very respectful. Other than the booing, you know, Dave <laughs> does a bow. It's very, like, respectful and reverent and all that stuff. But the guy is confident, obviously, as you would be if you'd just been presented with a bunch of school children. And so up stepped the first of our brave players to the new Virtua Fighter 3 arcade machine. The first Brit ever to take on a Japanese Tetsujin. Fight one. Ready, go! <laughs> Well, Tetsujin played as ninja character Cage, and the action was swift and brutal. In a matter of seconds, he had claimed his first skull for the day. Others were soon to follow. New challenger! New challenger! Hey, oh. Hey, oh. Hey, oh. Hey, oh. 
And I love this montage that we get because Tensujin plays as Cage and stays as Cage the entire time that he's playing there. He's found his guy. He's found his moveset. He's sticking with it. And it literally is just a matter of seconds. Boom, knocks a guy out. Boom, yeah. knocks a kid out. Boom, knocks a kid out. And you just hear that KO, new challenger. KO, 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 KO. It, it really does sort of ramp up the thing of like, oh man, this, this guy is unstoppable. You get the immediate reaction of the, the kid as they sort of throw their hands up in the air or like look at the ceiling or just like, full body sigh you know all the kind of it's really yeah it's really really choice that and you get one of the early challengers mark denton who was a street fighter champion and he's proper giving it the aggro on camera going he's going home not with his title anymore that's my title i don't know if the title was actually up for grabs but he seems to think so and he gets wasted losing the second round in 10 seconds yeah it's a very different game, though, as we established. If you're really good at Street Fighter, there's no guarantee you'll be really good at Virtual Fighter. I was good at neither, but I was slightly better at Street Fighter. You, it's, it's quite clear that a lot of these are just small kids who've never played the game before. And mm. as Ash said earlier, you can hear them playing the game because they are just sort of like mashing these buttons and stuff. But like, he's the first guy, you know, as challenge number 20, that's just like, no, no, I've got some gaming pedigree behind me. I'm a former Street Fighter champion it really adds this level of like oh no this guy really is unstoppable like he's even being mm. he's not just being kids he's being actual like video game champions again it's part of the storytelling of this episode right it's so beautifully put together is that they drop that in not right at the end but as a little narrative point you know for that first segment of the of the challenge i love when they interview the street fighter guy denton afterwards guy's pretty good actually yeah he's a pretty <laughs> <laughs> Again, very respectful of uh, of the guy who's just absolutely tonked him. He kicks my ass. You're not going to use that thing I said before, are you? <laughs> <laughs> Definitely not, Mark. Definitely not. I just want to address an elephant that I know is in the room online about this challenge, and it's to do with the win count. Yes. yes. Because at the point it said he defeats his 20th challenger, it says 28. But then later on, it drops back to 10, and then it's 14, and then it's 15. I've come up with two possible options for this, both of which are equally likely. One of which is they fixed it in the edit to make the narrative more interesting. We've never been guilty of that, have we, Luke? Nope, nope, never done that before in my life. (laughs) Never done that before. The other one, which I think is even more likely, is this is a British television production. This is a union shoot. It doesn't matter whether he was meant to have a break or whether he wanted to have a break. He (laughs) was going to have a smegging break. And if they were capturing the video footage, there would probably be moments where they have to change the tapes over, at which point I'd imagine if nothing else, they just have to let it time out or they reset the machine or whatever. Like you can see at times in this challenge, the machine's off. Mm. Like, you know, when they're interviewing kids who are sat there and the screen's black behind them because turned it off because this is a TV show. And you have to stage things in a certain way and get cameras set up in certain places to do interviews and things like that. And the mm. easy thing to do is just turn the machine off, give the lad a break. We know he has a break because he gets interviewed halfway through the challenge. I'm prepared to believe that he played the the hundred matches. Like, oh yeah, with stuff like this, you know, there'll be necessities where they have to sort of twiddle with things a bit. But I believe that they they will have tried to make the challenge a challenge. You know, if he hadn't managed it, they wouldn't have given him the joystick. It's it's, it's less fun to just fake the entire thing. So I don't think they faked the entire thing. Obviously, the, the players were middling to low quality, but he will have played all 100 of those matches just because it's, it's more fun that way. I think some people, and I say this as someone that, as I messaged you the other day, Luke, edited-wise, we have spent over 150 hours just talking about the Dominic Diamond era of Games Master. Never mind Dexter or anything else. We've talked about this guy for 150 hours. 
We love to draw our little conspiracies. We love to put our little foil hats on. But the internet is even more than that. So they see a counter that doesn't make sense. And suddenly the maps are out. They've got the murder boards on the wall with the, <laughs> the red, red string. Yeah, yeah, the, the red string connecting everything. My favourite of the kids they interview, uh, and remember, these are supposed to be the best players in the country, says, Basically, I'm just going to hammer the buttons as fast as I can and hope that I hit him. I'm just going to mash buttons and hope for the best. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone around him was like, "Lol, um, yeah, it's pretty funny." Because the guy before was like, "Oh, I'm going, you know, I'm going to get in there with Jackie and you know, try and get some early hits in, you know, and see if I can just knock him off, you know." And the, the next kid is like, "Yeah, I'm just going to smash buttons." You know, these kids as well. They might have been, they might have been video game playing kids who were interested. But as a kid with not a lot of pocket money growing up, like I didn't play on arcade sticks that often. You know, I didn't own an arcade stick at home. And when I played Street Fighter, it was on a on a pad. Yeah. So there might have been kids who were actually quite handy at, at Street Fighter or whatever. But learning to play on an arcade stick, and it's something like I I'm still not brilliant on an arcade stick, but I enjoy it as a kind of nostalgic thing. A lot of these kids, it might have been the first time they played a fighting game on a stick. And, you know, again, I don't think Virtua Fighter was like a dominant fighting game in the way that Street Fighter was at the time. You know, even stuff like getting your head around the button to block. You know, if you're a Street Fighter, it was, it's hold back to block. So I can imagine that a lot of these kids were just absolutely smashing buttons and hoping for the best. You know, probably a load of them were mashing the guard button and not doing any moves. You know, they'd never played Virtua Fighter on an arcade stick before. I think they were definitely up against it. We get a few more medleys of various competitors saying their kind of final thoughts after they've just been absolutely murdered on this game. One saying it was tougher than he thought, didn't stand a chance. Another said, he's a hard man. <laughs> he's a hard man. Hard yeah, man. he's a hard man. No, I mean. describes this guy as extremely hard at games at one point. I'm like, is that really how he spoke in the 90s? Apparently it was. It's actually quite a nice little window to be like, I'm pretty sure I did used to talk like that. Mm. And the last one says, I've learned a lot today. I love that as well. I've learned a lot in the 30 seconds that I played that guy. <laughs> I thought I was good at video games. I know nothing. I should be ashamed of myself. Maybe it wasn't about video games, what he learned. What he learned is that television is really long and boring. <laughs> and boring being here. Sitting around, waiting for things to happen. He was actually stood downwind of Kirk Ewing, so he learned a lot. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> learned about um, certain substances, perhaps. We even cut back to Games Master, who just goes, incredible yeah i want that as my mobile phone text (laughs) (laughs) poor patrick does not get a lot to do in this episode so they do give him these couple of cutaways where they've just said patrick act like you've just seen uranus you know incredible yeah (laughs) at what point does he just say tetsujin yeah that's my favorite one he just goes tetsujin and that's it I want the outtakes because when we had the football challenge a while ago of Games Master trying to go, ooh, ah, Cantona, <laughs> and it was just like, ooh, ah, Cantona. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, and now at this point, the Ted Susan has beaten 84 people. I've halted the action here because I'm sure he, he wants to have a chat with me as well. Naomi, uh, if you ask him, he's played 84 people. How's it been going so far? <laughs> どうですか、これまで。うん。この女性と自己ベストは90、8。His best score is 80 and 98. So he want to renew his He thinks he can even beat that. Yeah. We have got 100 fighters here. He's only got to beat 90 of them. When we cut back to Dominic Diamond on set, he's already on fight 
And this is where he has a little bit of an interview with him. And apparently in this, he says that his current record is 98. So he's looking to beat that record. So Games Master set a challenge. He's setting himself his own challenge within this. And Don wishes him the best for Challenger 85 and goes up for the first time to stand next to Dave Perry in the box. And boy, howdy, don't they look comfortable next to each other? <laughs> the professional uh, tension between them is is astonishing throughout this episode. Obviously, the, the Christmas episode aside, this is the episode in which I feel like Dave is most tired of Dom's bull basically. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. This is it. This is he's getting to the end of his tether. It, this is his glorious moment where he gets to present the show, but also he knows he's playing second fiddle to 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 Dominic Diamond, and it it's eating him up inside throughout. Especially as this is his big moment to yeah, shine. Exactly. Yep. He's a fighting game expert. He's got a book coming out on them. He certainly has. Yeah, big deal for marketing managers. Yeah. <laughs> this may not be the case, but it absolutely has the vibe of what they present on screen, which is that Dominic swans in at 10.30 and Dave (laughs) has already been working for five hours. And yeah, he just sweeps in, takes the mick a bit and then wanders off, I guess, to ogle Tracy. Tracy Shaw. Tracy Shaw. (laughs) Probably wanders in with a bacon sandwich and a fag. Welcome to my show. (laughs) (laughs) Which, you know, whether Dave liked it or not. It is his show. It is his show. His his name was the one on the marquee. Hmm. So we do actually get to see Challenge 85. So this is like the first time we get to see a full actual fight of this challenge. <laughs> and, and, and why I say that, it, it doesn't last long, but it is, it's not in highlight form is what I mean. He just perfects his first round. And the second round, it feels slightly more even. And he really does get down to like the Nat's dick length of time left, but he still wins and it's fine. Yep. Great storytelling. They pick the right ones to cut to and stuff. They must have had reams of footage for this that they were having to sift through to to kind of construct this story. A lot of it had to be planned as well. You know, they must have, when they were coming up with the running order, they must have known that they kind of wanted something from around that region. And I guess maybe the reason we come in at sort of 85 is because they didn't feel like they had exactly what they needed from the from the early stuff. They know that some of the kids are much better than others, so we just saved all of those to the end. Mm. Fox Hunt is a game about posh people shooting undefended woodland creatures. No, it's not. But we'll probably still get complaints now. This plays a lot like D did on the Saturn and PlayStation, with the directions moving from one sequence of film to another piece, with the X button being used to activate items on screen. Occasionally, there are other characters in the game, which you sometimes get to fight, which is quite a bit more exciting. But overall, the game's just not funny and it's just not good. Later on in the game, you actually do get to skydive, ski, dodge bullets, dodge Russians. It's uh, it's your typical secret agent affair. It pretends to be fun. Okay, we uh, interrupt all those reviews there, not because we thought they were particularly appalling, but because the Tetsujin might be in trouble with his 89th challenger, Omar. We go into a review section here, but we come out of that review section. Dom on the set says, like, we've got to cut off this review section here because the Tetsujin's in trouble in this challenge. Yeah, I love that they come back from... I mean, the review, the game looks garbage. Um, (laughs) I love that they come back and Dom's like, we've had to cut away from that review, not because it was particularly appalling. Again, it's just a great little, like, narrative sort of thing. It genuinely irked me that they cut away from it, though, because this game is not good. I will say that. It is definitely not good, but it is really weird Mm. as interesting games go this is a full motion video game an interactive movie funded in part by capcom wow okay i had no idea that was the case see now you're interested now now you're hooked because like (laughs) why why were capcom making an interactive movie this movie originally was like made in 1995 going on 1996 
This was the PlayStation version being reviewed, but it came out for the PC before that. It was called Fox Hunt, and it cost about $2 million to make, so not an insubstantial amount for a full motion video game. But unlike a lot of full motion video games, it was shot on 16mm film. So somewhere in the Capcom vaults, never mind your upscaled Night Trap footage, we could get a full HD version of Fox of Fox Hunt. Of <laughs> that's what they wanted. That's how they're trying yeah. to catch you out. <laughs> it's like Jeremy Hunt all over again. <laughs> they could make a full HD remaster of Fox Hunt. They won't. They yeah. probably don't even want to admit that it exists. It's under the rushes for Street Fighter the movie, the game, right? You know, <laughs> the cans will be underneath the VHSs from that. And it's guaranteed Capcom don't even remember that they got this made. Of like, course, they don't know it's in the vault. You know, you had the little slip up there with Fox Hunt if that still makes it into the edit. Although I'm now guaranteed that it, I'm now guaranteed that it is in the edit. Bastard. <laughs> because like the, the guys behind this were behind a game that's actually featured in our Games Master timeline before, National Lampoon's Blind Date, okay. which was in the gore special as part of the sexy oh, games you should oh, go out of your no. way to play. That was an uncomfortable section to record in front of a live studio audience. <laughs> I bet, yeah. But I've got to say, I'm like, I'm weirdly, again, as a sort of relic of a bygone age, I'm weirdly obsessed with the FMV games that are covered in Games Master because they are all, till one, are completely forgotten. The one I love the most, and I'm sure you've already covered it, is Mackenzie & Co. And it's the one where you're trying to go on a prom date with lots of handsome boys. Yeah. You've got a pre-Tinder dating robot and i'm committed to playing that on outside xbox or outside extra because i just desperately want to do a do a video where we try and get a, a hot prom date in this 90s fmv game i'm i'm obsessed with them they're all so bad they're so rotten to that point like the reaction to this game was just uh, this is a direct quote just another example of how unplayable interactive movies can be yes the video game was not the end of the story for fox hunt because they'd done about 2000 odd camera setups 20000 edits 3 hours of live action footage 735 shots and nine different endings whoa so they made a movie out of their interactive movie they took the footage they made it into an actual film they shot more footage to make it all make sense and wow. it actually played around the festivals obviously i can get the game via various means on the internet but i want to see the actual way they made this work as a film it does have actual acting talent in it uh george lazenby is in it wow timothy bottoms of the last picture show amazing gary coleman is in the recut version that they did for the the, the film version of it not the game you know we've filmed right. new scenes with gary coleman but that's the thing about fmv movies because everyone thought it was the future you'd end up with these bizarrely massive stars doing it like christopher walken in ripper he's some legit acting talent and they've they've got him playing some serial killer in some weird fmv game like at the time, people didn't realise how rubbish they were going to be. There was a real like bubble of throwing a ton of money at these FMV things around the time that CDs became a viable storage medium. I was always very excited by the prospect of Tia Carrera in the Daedalus encounter, but not because of the quality of the game, but because <laughs> I had a bit of a crush on her from Wayne's World. Wayne's World, yeah, that's it. You could have stopped the sentence that I was very excited by Tia Carrera and it would have just carried the same weight. Now, we do not get a review score here. And amazingly, there are not many actual in-depth reviews of this game out there. I know, I went through archive.org and the magazine rack, <laughs> and I eventually found one from a magazine from Israel. Okay. So the entire review is written in Hebrew. Thankfully, I have a friend who translated it into English Incredible. for me. Incredible. 
the level of research, Ash. I'm, I'm in awe. Well, mainly it is because this is where I get to be a git and we play a game because here on Under Consultation, we have a game called Strike It Lukey, which is where I read the synopsis next to an individual score for like graphic sound, playability and longevity. And Luke has to guess what the score is. And then he can use those scores, whether right or wrong, to guess what the overall score is. But we have a guess. Play it, Mikey. So we can have a head-to-head. Yes. I worked out rules. They're even (laughs) written down on a yellow pad. So the rules for versus Strike It Lukey or Mike It Lukey. Mm. There we go. Like it. One point for being the closest without going over. Two points for the exact score. And for the overall total, three points if you get it exactly right. I mean, I'm, I'm going up against some some big pedigree here. See, I wrote video game reviews for a living for, like, years. I'm going to do a full Dave Perry sense of humor <laughs> failure if I lose this. I've got a book coming. I don't have a book coming out. <laughs> I mean, I make sh- videos about wrestling. I'm, I'm really coming from behind <laughs> in this. What we're going to do, we're going to take it in turns. So Luke will go first on one. Mike, you'll go first on the second. Right. And then whoever is in last place for the overall score will go first. I've genuinely worked all this out because I want this to become a competitive sport. It's complex. I like it. I will give you one hint. These guys really liked this game. (laughs) Amazing. Okay, good. To the point where when my friend sent me the translation, I went back to him and went, this is definitely right. This isn't some weird thing where like a high score is actually a low score. A bad means good kind of 90s thing. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) All the scores are out of 100. It's a percentile score. Mm. And as you are a guest, Mike, you will go first for graphics. Got it. There is no doubt that in terms of graphics, the results are very impressive. Unfortunately for PC owners, even a well-equipped Pentium may struggle. On the other platforms, performance is stable. Interesting. Slightly more uh, cautiously uh, positive than I was expecting, actually. I didn't realise they were going to start factoring in the performance of Pentium PCs. But then whose fault is it if your computer's rubbish? I think they're going to love these graphics. And I think we're looking 90s, I think maybe 91%. It's super realistic. There's a skiing scene. What's better than a video of a man skiing? So you're going with 91? I'm going for 91. I know it's a it's a high score and I know I, I, I need to not overshoot, but I have faith. Luke? See, my first instinct was to go... DeLorean 88, which is usually my go-to first guess, because that's usually a safe one, unless, of course, it's definitely going to be in the 90s. And I don't feel that this is in the 90s. So I'm actually going to play even safer, Ash. So if I can go to that closest to the pin without going over, I'm going to say 85. The overall score for graphics was 95%. Oh yeah, see? The most realistic graphics are film. <laughs> you can't get more realistic than it, real life. can't deny that. <laughs> One point to Mike. Luke, your record is standing strong. Oh, yeah. I'm very bad at this game. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> sound. The PC version demands a high-quality sound card. Without one, you can't enjoy the cinematic quality of the music, speech, and sound effects. Now, there are, they are right as well about the CD quality stuff there, because Faith No More are on this soundtrack, the greatest band what? to ever live. So... I've got a feeling that it's going to get a high score just off the fact that Mike Patton appears on the soundtrack. I think that's why Shredder's Revenge did so well on its scores, is because yeah. everyone loved that Mike Patton sang the theme song. Based on that first one, I'm going to say 90. Mike? I'm going to say that, unlike graphics, 
with sound, I definitely feel like the onus is on you to have the the requisite hardware to listen to this awesome sonic soundscape. So I feel like... Do I think they're going to go higher than 95? No, it's going to be close, though, because the two things are so connected. It's cinematic visuals and cinematic audio. I think they're going to be close, but I think the, the audio is slightly less important than the video of a man skiing, and therefore I'm going to go for 94%. Mike, you have scored two points. Yes! 94 Bang on Nailed the it. button. Nailed it. <laughs> I've, I've, I have the psychology of a video game reviewer ingrained within me. <laughs> Calibrating. You weren't lying, Ash. They really did like this game. <laughs> <laughs> These are like Mario 64 scores. It's when we get to gameplay, that's when, we get, when we're really going to find out how much they loved it. Speaking of playability... Surprisingly, on the PC, it is played with a keyboard. This is quite convenient and also helps in solving the game. Important objects will pop up to the screen at the appropriate time without you needing to make an effort to find it, unlike the good old days. That sounds less positive. I mean, convenience doesn't exactly translate to playability, does it? The convenience of being able to use your keyboard. On the basis that this doesn't feel like the sort of review that will dip below 70 at any point... I don't know. Do I want to go high 70s or do I want to go low 80s? Let's go low 80s. Let's let's suggest that it's overblown and they'll feel like even sort of stripping out 18%. That's a real savaging as far as they're concerned for this game. So I'm going to go 82. Luke, I feel like I should just take what my gut instinct is and either plus 5 or plus 10. So I'm going to go DeLorean. 88, please. Luke, you're back in the game. 88 exactly. Wow. Nailed it. Thanks, it's Doc. It's all still to play for. For me, at least, this is more exciting than I thought it would be. This is genuinely tense. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm on tenterhooks. Pressure's on here. Longevity. It's a large game, beautifully made, looks real nice, but still suffers from interactive cinema syndrome. Although it is relatively difficult to solve, it's a one-time-only game. Oh, that's... I think I'm going to go early 80s there. I think I'm going to say 82 mike yeah i would have i mean that that sentence says 70s to me but we've already established that these people are completely hat stand (laughs) and the game that is barely more interactive than a dvd menu is getting (laughs) high 80s in terms of playability so i think 82 is a solid guess i'm gonna go 83 and hope that it's higher basically smart mike was smart indeed It was 87, so Mike is the closest without going over, meaning going into the total, Mike, you are on four points. Luke, you are on two, so we'll take the first stab at the final score. Could still win this as well. The summary for total score will do you no favours. Oh, great. (laughs) Very nice indeed, Capcom. (laughs) What can you pass from from that? (laughs) What can you divine from... I was just going to say, that really was like, a, it's the end of the day. This is my yep. last review. <laughs> yeah, I'm on a Friday. Pub is calling. Good job, comma, Capcom, send. And so it was 95, I believe, for graphics, 94 for sounds. Playability was 88, and then the other one was 87. So we've got two in the 90s, two in the 80s. I am going to say 91%. I nearly said 90, but I'm going 91. Mike. I think that's too low. I think it's going to be close to the top scores, so it's going to be 95 or 94 
percent and i'm going to go for 94 i thought the other two might have like, dragged it down nah they love this they, <laughs> they love it <laughs> no, they love it mate they have to admit that you can only play it once but still gave it a massive score for longevity so mike you are on 94 percent. luke Correct. you are on 91 are those your final answers yes, yes. i'm nervous but yes you've both gone bust it was 90. Luke, you should have stuck oh, with your wow. instinct. Oh, wow. But, Dash wins. I mean, I always win on this game. <laughs> but in this case, Mike, four points. You were the winner. You most accurately guessed what a 1996 <laughs> Israeli reviewer thought of Fox Hunt. I told you I read a lot of video game magazines <laughs> as a kid. Like I've, I've just absorbed and assimilated all of this stuff. You read this magazine? I didn't know you spoke Hebrew. <laughs> I definitely don't. I definitely don't. <laughs> I now definitely want to do more versus Strike at Lukey because that was fun. It was fun. I enjoyed myself. Thank I you. I mean, that's that's the next under consultation live. Like we keep talking, <laughs> yeah. we keep talking about video game challenges. This is the real challenge. I have to come back for a rematch, maybe. You versus the entire audience. Strike at Lukey Tetsujin challenge. I was going to say it's my own Tetsujin. Oh, that's it. It writes itself. <laughs> anyway, now we've established that Fox Hunt is the greatest game of all time. We should probably go back to that Tetsujin fella. He's still there. Still working away. I was going to say, we really have a never mind that shit, here comes Virtua Fighter moments where we sort of like, <laughs> Dom cuts him off being like, shut up, Rick, I don't care what you have to say in that review. The Tetsujin is having trouble on his 89th opponent, which is uh, Omar, who's playing as Kai. He gets a lot of damage in, probably the most damage that the Tetsujin's had all day. But most importantly, he gets a ring out. It's the first loss our Tetsujin has had all day long and it really is this moment like you know the peanut gallery of all the other kids get this big like whoa we got one on him and it adds this like oh he's getting tired maybe he is vulnerable and they cut to a reaction shot of the tetsujin and i use the word reaction generously because he <laughs> generally looks to give zero <laughs> <laughs> he's got it all under control a ring out seems to be the the best bet for these guys at this stage and it's a real janky looking ring out Pi looks like she's about to fall off the thing anyway, and then Cage falls off instead. It's on that weird level with the slanted roof, if I recall correctly, and it just looks strange. And, and so I don't, I don't really blame him for making that error. But yeah, it's a moment of victory for, for Team UK, <laughs> Team <laughs> School Kids UK. It's like the moment in Matilda where the kid eats all the cake. Yeah. And just all the kids are like, yes, <laughs> he is our hero. It does feel like the Tetsujin just like, well, I need to show you a thing or two now. So just absolutely tries to murder him in the second yeah. round. Owns, absolutely owns him. Fairness to Omar, he does do well there. He makes a bit of a comeback and they get to one round each. Dave thinks he's like, oh, Omar's going to go for another ring out here. But he does not get the opportunity because Tetsujin just absolutely dominates him <laughs> as this devastating one-sided fight. And then Dom gets the post-match, and this kid's already lost, but bloody hell, this is Dom in proper season four. Let's dig the heel in a bit. Okay, right, Omar, uh, you managed to hike him off the roof in, the in that boat, but then it started to go a bit downhill after that. What happened? Well, I don't know. He just caught me by surprise because I got some moves, you know. I lost. Right. And you know, we quite literally stopped our reviews because we thought you were going to win. I know. And you didn't. And? How do you feel? Not in the slightest bit. So. You don't, you're, you're diffident. Yeah. Have you been taught that word at school? Yes. Excellent. Okay, well, uh, thank you, Omar. I'm, um, the future of the country lies in the hands of men like him. Dom's like, we stopped the reviews. 
We thought you were going to win. You, you've ruined the show by not winning, Omar. What the hell? Absolutely doesn't care. Yeah, he's like, I don't give a shit. I don't give a shit. <laughs> Basically. It's not my show, Dom. And then Dom has the classic line about <laughs> the future of our country is in <laughs> hands of men like this. So withering and so brilliantly off the cuff. Okay, then, um, he's on the number 89 then. So it looks as if during this commercial break, there's a very good chance he will beat the Games Master's target of 90. However, our final 10 are extremely hard competitors indeed. We're going to see if he can get to the full 100. If that wasn't enough, after years of begging me, we finally allowed Coronation Street's Tracy Shaw to come on the show. All of that coming up in part two. See you in a moment. One big box of Persil gives you loads and loads of beautifully clean, bright washers. Not just 10 or 20, but 30 quality washers carefully measured with our helpful new cup. So be sure of more. Look for the basket on the box. At this age, they seem so vulnerable, but you can't be with them all the time. But I'm not really that worried. Oh, bless her. Strong, thick Domestos clings longer, so you can be sure that with its help, your family is safe from germs. Domestos kills all known germs dead. As the UK's number one, Lumpoly give more discounts on more holidays than any other travel agent. Lumpoly, a better way to get away. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The Emerald Isle, the 40 shades of green, the land of milk and bacon. You know, I've uh, got to be someplace in two hours. You think you'd have it poured by then? Leprechauns, trout fishing, the Eurovision Song Contest, the Nolan Sisters. Bitter. He's not even conscious. A land of authentic Irish beers like Holston O'Pills. Hand pulled. More like leg pulled. A cool, clean tasting brew made from Kilkenny hops, Kerry barley, yeast from Killarney, and cool, clean Kildare water. Holston O'Pills, the true taste of Ireland. And cut. And pulled B camera. Uh, can I get down now? This winter, create the same warm feeling with a very different soup. New Soup Creations from Bachelors. Britain's biggest computer sale is now on at PC World. A really big sale. 
with the biggest choice of famous name PCs. Massive savings. And our best ever sale prices. Biggest sale ever. We're in the world. PC World's PC biggest world. ever computer sale. Now on. Master, what can I tell you about the Tetsujin? Well, he's a bloke from Japan. We've flown him over. He is rock hard at games and he's got a nice lining jacket as well. So we come back from the ad break to find that during said commercial break, uh, Tetsujin has beaten numbers 90, 91 and 92. Uh, bugger, 90 is actually really stuck a craw in me actually just seeing that number written down. Um, <laughs> <laughs> But still to this point, has only lost one single bounce, and we see him get another KO on number 93, with Day pointing out that he has not lost a round since Omar's ring-out win over him. This is where Dominic says that our last batch of people here, these are the hardest arcade players in the country. Mm -hmm. Emphasis on, like, these are our top-tier players now. These are the ones that played Virtua Fighter 3 before today. Yes, exactly, <laughs> yeah, yeah. These are the ones who aren't on day release from drama school. <laughs> <laughs> and yet, Tetsujin is going through them like sliced bread, as Derek Lynch <laughs> said in a previous episode. Dave gamely tries to fix the idiom, like not at all in on the joke. Yeah. Which leads into the bit where Dave Perry looks the most done with Dominic Diamond I have ever seen. Dominic cuts him off and then starts talking about Tracy, the next guest. And Dave just looks furious, absolutely furious. He's like rolling his eyes. He's shaking his head. He just looks so pissed off. And it's the biggest insight into his mentality in this series that you get outside of the Christmas quiz. It's amazing. It's everything that Don was doing to him in series four, just rolling eyes, shaking yeah. head. Didn't go quite as far as pretending to fall asleep. Yeah. But it could have gone there. Absolutely. But for some reason, when he's doing it, it just seems not more petty, but just seems like he's just not one of the boys. And I sympathise, you know, clearly he's fallen out of that, that sort of group and that banter and he'd always taken himself a bit more seriously and stuff. I think it's the initial interruption. Basically, like Dom just sort of talks over him, which is weird because, you know, you'd have thought a link would be planned. But I guess the slightly, you know, live-esque format of the show meant it was a little bit looser. Whereas in those quotes we were reading out for the Christmas episode, for the, the Dave Perry incident, where it's like he wanted Games Master to take itself seriously and didn't mm. understand that no one else apart from him wanted to take this thing seriously. So this is an episode where they're taking something seriously, but all Dominic wants to do is talk about the blonde woman that he fancies from that soap he doesn't watch. Mm. Who won bum of the year? Like that sort of thing. And I think for David, it's just like trying to do something that's actually really serious and cool here, but you can't help but be you. As Dominic points out in the book, they didn't tune in for, for serious. They tuned in for, you know, reverent and, and, and silly. It must be tricky. I mean, you've got a, like a professional comedian, essentially, guy who's done stand up and stuff, standing next to you, saying funny stuff. And if you're not, prepared or on your feet or on your toes you're always going to sound like the guy who's like struggling to catch up or or just the guy who's overly serious compared to the nonsense and that's why dominic and kirk work so well together is they both have that sort of esprit d'escalier like saying the next silliest thing you know maybe kissing dominic diamond on the mouth and i just don't think that's just not how dave's wired and you know some people aren't wired that way but i think he really struggled in situations like that i think rick 
came off a lot better because they were matey and some of Rick's jokes were absolutely ludicrous, but he could he could hang with the banter. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. I, I'm just not sure Dave ever could. You know, he was in there as an expert and a guy who took video games extremely seriously. This was his career and his livelihood. And, you know, in the book, they described it with the Christmas episode, they describe it as a sense of humor failure. And it's like, actually, is it a sense of humor failure? Or did he never really have that sort of sense of humor throughout? I think it's really telling that Dominic makes the joke about Derek Lynch. Dave's immediate reaction is to actually fix the idiom. That's like a microcosm of their dynamic on screen. Couple that with his reaction to the introduction to the celebrity challenge. I've got to be clear, like I like Dave Perry's contribution to Games Master. I think he was it was important to have a sort of straight man, but I don't think he ever felt comfortable in that role. And he became a, a bit of a whipping boy, I guess, by very nature of the fact that he was the only person taking it seriously the only one trying to be an adult in the room but then weirdly the adult in the room was the one wearing the bandana so you know it's it's a bit strange really as a setup for our live show i wore a u.s flag bandana and i took it off after half an hour because that bandana it's difficult to pull off yeah. Well, actually, you know, it's very easy to pull off. It's difficult to carry off. Yeah. So a little bit of respect for wearing that bandana under studio lights. Uh, but let's get into our celebrity challenge. What are we playing, Games Master? Today, my contestant will be heading off for a spin in a winter wonderland, thanks to the marvellous new snowboarding attraction, Alpine Surfer. Using a real snowboard to guide themselves, their task will be simply to get to the bottom of the mountain before the clock runs out. Okay, let's get peace. As I've written in my notes here, it's like Alpine Racer, but with a snowboard this time. Snowboarding's cool. It's 1997, man. Skiing's out. Snowboarding's a thing. Cool Borders is just around the corner. And this is essentially Alpine Racer with a snowboard. There is not much more to this game. This is Namco with minimal effort in making a new game. I genuinely don't know how much difference there was in the coding. I mean, the course was different, sure. But I do wonder, it's like, did they just go, let's just change a couple of zeros and ones here and there. Boom, problem solved. But as you said, snowboarding, it's cool. And so particularly over here in Europe, Alpine Surfer did way more business than Alpine Racer. Really? It was way more successful over here. It was big in Japan, but it was way bigger in Europe. It was one of those games, much like actually the Alpine Racer, that drew in the casual gamer. Because you didn't need to memorize controls. You didn't need to get that you needed to do down, forward, down, forward, punch, kick, spin in a semicircle and hail Satan. You just needed to <laughs> swing left and right. And even if you didn't do very well, you'd probably still have fun doing it. Yeah, it's like a nice and interactive thing. You're just like, you're on a big machine. You actually feel like you're on the, I mean, probably don't feel like you're on a snowboard, but you've got the big motion and everything. I can really see the appeal of this. I did find one review from CBG that said, surprisingly, it's not as much fun as Alpine Racer and the stupid yells and lingo, gnarly, radical, etc., are just annoying. Also, the game's over far too quickly to be worth one pound. Wow. One pound in 1997. I don't think I ever paid a quid to play this. Maybe it's just growing up in the West Country where pound coins were mythical. But I'm pretty certain this was a 50p machine, which was still the high end. 
of what my local arcade would have. I never saw an Alpine Surfer machine, but I definitely saw a lot of Alpine races back in the day. I guess maybe up, up north it was sort of, you know, maybe we were getting the sort of cast-offs and stuff. But I loved Alpine Race. I loved the fact that it unlocked and then you could do the edges on the skis. And I feel like, as, as established in this show, like it's trickier to stand on a surfboard than it is to stand on a pair of skis with, with poles. And uh, please welcome uh, tonight's special guest as Coronation Street's Maxine Shea makes the north of England seem almost hospitable. Police welcome Tracy Shaw. Welcome to the show, Tracy. Hello. Now, Tracy, if Coronation Street is supposed to be such an accurate rendition of life in the north, mm. how come everyone has jobs? <laughs> now, what are you trying to say about I've it? Never, every time I've been there, they've just been kind of like standing around on the street. No, it's not like that at all. Okay, let's talk about Maxine. Basically, you've been intimate with a lot of gentlemen on the show. We've Des, Andy, Tony. Mm. What about Percy? What's wrong with him? Well, Percy takes a bit of getting to, really. I've got to work my way around him. Uh-huh. Probably it's because he's old and he wears about 40 layers of clothing. <laughs> and finally, I have to mention, you were um, voted Reader of the Year mm -hmm. last year, uh, an award which you, which I've actually won for the previous three. <laughs> uh, what, what did you have to do for that? Well, I didn't do anything, really. Right. I just wore tight pants on the street. Uh-huh. And mm -hmm. let your buttocks do the talking. Exactly. Really, something which uh, I talk out of uh, quite a lot of time as well. Our celebrity this week is Tracy Shaw, a.k.a. Maxine Peacock, from Coronation Street. And look, I'm a northern boy, and I'm particularly from the northwest. A lot of pops of the northwest don't have jobs, stealing shoes. I mean, Dom Scottish, he surely, surely he should be on our side in all of this. Now, he can literally punch down on this one. It's just like, <laughs> you're north, but we're a separate country. Yeah. It doesn't count. It's true. It's true. He is quite mean, isn't he? But I think Tracy's quite game to, you know, or at least doesn't rise to it. Yeah, she seems quite game for the the interview and the the challenge and everything like that. Like, she seems having a really good time on it. I think with Games Master Celebrities, sometimes they're really into it, and sometimes they just don't know why they're there. Mm. And she feels like one of those people that's just like, I'm on here because... Dom fancies me. I've just won Rear of the Year and Coronation Street and that. But also, like, yeah, this is a bit of fun. It's This is a nice way to spend a Wednesday. And it's a weird one because Corrie and Emmerdale stars and Brookside as well, I think, they seem to have a good time on Games Master. The buggers from EastEnders. <laughs> I'm trying to think of any EastEnders star that actually seems to have had a genuinely good time because we've had a raft of them where they just all did not want to be there. Todd Carty, he had a good time, but also maybe that's because at that point he was like in the middle of the most controversial soap storylines ever. He was getting hate mail over the concept of being a character on British television that had AIDS. You know, it was this really weird time. So maybe he was just like, oh, thank for the day out of the studio. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> She's also not our only uh, rear of the year winner who's been a Games Master contestant. Good trivia. Who is the other one? Ulrika Johnson. Uh, yes. Former games like uh, 1992 Rear of the Year, uh, Gary Barlow 1997 Rear of the Year, Frank Skinner 1998, Robbie Williams 1999. Frank Skinner, whoa, 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 whoa. back up. Yes. Frank Skinner, yeah, Frank Skinner won the 1998 Rear of the Year along with Carol Smiley. We were in a weird place in the late 90s, weren't we? I, I don't, I wouldn't want to, I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't want to cast aspersions against Frank, Frank Skinner's bum. But in my mind's eye, it's a very skinny bum with not a lot of shape. So I'm surprised to hear that he uh, has rear of the year and I'll have to go and research this and, and work out exactly what the winning criteria was. You'll, you'll be studying the Three Lions video closely, <laughs> just waiting for any of the goal celebration shots and going, yeah. oh, no, there it is, two eggs in a hanky. Yeah. There we yeah, go. Fair. 
I mean, Gary Barlow went in 97 along with Melinda Messenger. And it just feels like two very different sides of a coin there. Mm. I love uh, I love Dom's buttocks joke. It's very good. It's a very good joke <laughs> <laughs> about talking out of his, his bum. I like his ending line of just, uh, I can't stand close to you. For legal reasons, we won't go into it, though. <laughs> and uh, while Tracy gets her trainers on, Derek Lynch is going to bring my hormones back to a less raging level. Derek, um, have you got any tips for Tracy on this? Yes, well, Tracy should try and keep to the correct side of the gates. Uh -huh. She can gain two seconds on her time for that. Okay. And also try and hit the ramps as straight as possible. But if she goes at an angle on the ramps, she'll get a performer air trick. Right, okay then. Yeah. And uh, Tracy has to get down to the end of the race uh, within a lot of time. It's quite, quite literally that simple. This goes back to the humour. Dom was good at ripping the piss out of other people, especially Dave, especially Derek, especially Kirk. Mm. He was also very good at ripping the piss out of himself. And so was Kirk. And so was Rick. Yeah. They rip the piss out of themselves and other people. Dave could rip the piss out of other people. We saw him do it to a number of competitors. Mm. We have talked with some degree of discomfort about the real issue he seemed to have with female gamers in Series 3 and Series yeah, 4. it's bad, isn't it? Every single time he mentions them, it's, yeah, it's... Oh, should never have bet on the girl because girls can't play games. Yeah, this has... is a boy's... No, this is no no girls, you know, no, no girls, no girls in the treehouse, yeah. But he could never turn that around he could never actually kind of he was never self-deprecating really mm. he could never do the jokes whereas dom for the most part most of the actual jokes apart from about manchester and people being unemployed and stealing trainers from children <laughs> were actually about himself i mean he's prepared to suggest that he's a sex offender which i think is <laughs> is the basis of the joke and, and you know it doesn't get more deprecating than yeah suggesting that you're on some sort of register uh, I'm just going to quickly pop into the chat as well uh, an image of Frank Skinner and Carol Smiley celebrating their Rear of the Year win. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, there's a little more of it than I expected. There's slightly more there than Carol's got. Yeah, That's, I know, uh, yeah. I'd almost say this has been photoshopped, but I know it hasn't because there's no way Carol would wear white long johns like that. <laughs> no, indeed. Yeah, yeah. it does look a bit like a swap of some sort. But, you know, I was expecting a much skinnier rear from Frank Skinner because he's quite, you know, like he's quite skinny around the face, but clearly the man has junk in the trunk. That's the thing is that's why we're not on the panel for rear of the year is that we can't foresee these sorts of things. Indeed. I really hope you use an incognito tab for this, Luke. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, your search results are stuffed. <laughs> Just a little bit more on Tracy Shaw. She was a long-term performer in Coronation Street but she actually suffered something of a similar fate to another Games Master alumni of Tanicha Dobre, otherwise known as Tanicha Geronimo, who was back in Series 5, Episode 5. And if you remember, Luke, when we talked about her, basically she was killed off. She took up issues with Emmerdale management um, about uh, storylines, and I think pay may have come into it. They were just like, nope, we're writing you out, and we're going to make sure that you cannot come back. And a similar thing happened to Tracy. They tried to cut her pay. It wasn't that she asked for more money. They tried to take away the money she was already earning. And it became a dispute with management. They went, well, fine, there's the door. Don't let it hear you on your award-winning rear on the way out. <laughs> her award-winning rear was murdered on the 13th of January 2003 on screen. So basically they did go, well, you're not coming back for the anniversary specials. Wow. Okay. On-screen death in a soap is, is pretty final. But at least it was, you know, a good sort of five or six years after this. So it wasn't necessarily Games Master's fault that she got murdered on screen. But yes. Anyway, back to the challenge. The, the challenge itself, you know, she does it fine. Like, it's, it's absolutely fine. She misses 
probably I think by the end about five of the gates mm. overall. Like considering that they said that she fell off a lot in practice, clearly the trainers that they gave her helped her a lot uh, in this because she's really got the pardon the pun swing of it. Mm. My favorite part of this though is when you know they're talking about how good she's doing, and Derek is just like, "Yeah, she's doing really well. I think she's going to do this." And the second he says that, she hits a wall, then hits a tree. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's like the curse oh, of Derek Lynch. The curse of Derek Lynch. There, Derek seems a little bit all at sea during this one. At one point, Dom just hauls him up for not, you know, for just being confused by by what he's looking at. Stop staring at her ass, Derek. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. I feel like that's the story of Derek in, in series six. There's so many times, like we've mentioned before, any other professional production would have done retakes with Derek Lynch and asked him to get his words out. But they were like, no, it's fine. He can't say words properly. So we'll just keep that in the edits. And he'll just oh, stumble over words and he'll just pause and leave big gaps of silence. And that's the way that he is. I love it. I love it. And then he'll crack up afterwards when it's pointed out that he, <laughs> what he said is complete nonsense. What a, what a, an absolute ray of sunshine! And his his absence from the book is a is a is a real shame. But as I think Dominic Diamond said, no one knows where he is. They apparently could not track down Derek Lynch. But address ah, that was a dom. Was it was it on the trainers? Did they did they help a lot? I think it was the trainers actually. Yeah. What I was what I was wondering actually earlier, and I forgot to ask you before, is do you get any say in the plot lines of Coronation Street? No. Because I had this great idea right that Mike Seaton could fall in love with this guy who comes on, right? Physically not very attractive, wears glasses, but very amusing. Do you think that could work? Well, maybe. Because Chris Evans needs the work, <laughs> uh, I've heard. Boom, boom! Right, uh, thank you very much for coming with Tracy. It's been a delight uh, to see it, as I always say. Always nice to have someone on a fancy. So yeah, I guess in a way, I mean, as she says in the post-match, the trainers just really helped. And it just yeah. helped her stay on the board. It looks tricky. A snowboard is meant to be attached to your feet and, you know, it's supposed to be free moving on a on a surface of snow and maybe ice. Uh, and this is one that's swinging side to side and you're supposed to stay on it with not a lot of support really necessarily. It seems easy for an arcade game, but maybe she just makes it look easy. She, you know, she clears that stage with 10 seconds to spare, having missed like a ton of gates. And I look at it, I'm like, that looks fairly straightforward. Well, my, my exact thought was, someone's gone into the service menu yes and maybe just just drop the difficulty down a touch and maybe a bit too much because 10 seconds you're right 10 seconds if it had been three or four seconds or five seconds it'd be like oh she was pretty good at that yeah 10 seconds it's a question of well she really biffed a good chunk of that i mean maybe it's because it's a pound maybe they're like well we'll let you win a race because we've just charged you a yeah quid maybe this. yeah I wonder yeah. whether she was just absolute hot garbage in all the practice runs. And they were like, we're going to have to turn this down. Otherwise, she's going to just crash into three things and run out of time immediately. And then she had the run of her life. Once the trainers went on, like the power of Mercury, she got wings and, and flew. But it's a bit of a strange one. It looks like a looks like a real easy win compared to a lot of the stuff that they allowed celebrities to be brutalized by arcade games. Like It seems fairly straightforward. Well, even compared to the Alpine Racer Challenge we had in Series 5, mm. like that really was a like micromilliseconds across the finish lines. It, it creates this really incredible tension at the end. This was just like, oh no, she's done it and it's fine. Maybe that was the, the mistake they made was trying to engineer a, a sort of dramatic finish and actually she just hit less stuff than she had done in practice and they ended up with something that when they finally did it, you know, she succeeded easily. I could I could see them going, oh, we'll get, yeah, we'll get Alpine Surfer and we had a really close one last time. I bet we can, you know, I bet it'll be really exciting and actually, you know. <laughs> 
it's a bit of a strange one. It doesn't feel like there's a lot of tension or drama. No, I think the only real tension and drama is you can hear the kids mashing the other buttons yes. over on the Virtual Fighter 3 yeah. challenge. They're creating the ambiance. Speaking of challenges, Dom is facing the challenge of trying to broaden his career horizons by suggesting an upcoming plotline for Coronation Street where possibly Maxine could fall in love with this guy who's you know physically not very attractive, but he's quite funny and wears glasses. Could it work? Now... I wrote in my notes here, like he was like, oh, I've got this idea for a storyline. So I started cynically writing in my notes. Wonder what that storyline is, Dom, eh? And so I'm there writing it down, cynically taking notes. And I got sucker punch blindsided by the actual punchline of this, which is that oh, that's a shame because Chris Evans is looking for work. You fucking got me, Dom. <laughs> Absolutely fucking got me there. I do feel like he kind of ruins it a bit, though, by saying boom, boom afterwards. <laughs> a little bit basil brush for my liking it's a good joke it's a solid joke but then you know he just over eggs the pudding a little bit i think towards the end i appreciate the boom boom <laughs> if he hadn't said the boom boom i would have probably been sat here taking notes and said boom boom myself yeah fair fair i mean i've got very low expectations for humor it's one reason we've made it through all these episodes <laughs> dom goes right back into dominic diamond mode by saying like it is nice to have someone on the show that i do fancy it's like ah there he is there's yeah, dominic diamond wag and a rarity as well, when she gets the golden joystick from the mermaids, she gets a peck on the cheek from one of the mermaids. That does not normally happen with the female guests, so maybe Maxine's charms are more universal than we might have suspected. Not the award-winning cheeks, though. <laughs> I can't wait that much. <laughs> I mean, this is the home of Brookside. Like, who knows? <laughs> that would have been one for the Christmas tape. Well, it's all very exciting. The Tetsujin has just beaten his 99th opponent, but we thought we'd pause here for dramatic effect because it's not going all his own way now. He's lost a couple of rounds. Sneakily, we saved some of our best fighters for last. And I'm going to take a look at some highlights now to look at the rounds we managed to nick off the champion. So we go back into our final part of our Tetsujin Virtual Fighter 3 challenge. So Dave recaps, now that he has beaten... 99 of these and he has taken a few losses in the period of time while tracy shaw was playing alpine surfer like he took a loss in 96 and he took a loss in 98 but at this point he's still and beaten in two rounds he hasn't been beaten yet he's only lost three in 201 rounds which is, is a impressive. crazy number 176 rounds unbroken and an average time of 43 seconds per fight. If you're playing this stuff properly, you really are heightened senses, heightened reactions and stuff, looking for any movement that the other player's doing and trying to apply the correct response to it. I know it's TV and I know it's a bunch of drama school kids, but that's an, it is an impressive feat. But now he faces the might of Simon from Sheffield. <laughs> All the way from Sheffield. Dom's taken a lot of pot shots at Sheffield and all of this. He's at his pop at the Northwest, and now he's like, now Sheffield's my new target now. He's creeping further south. <laughs> and he's got the very interesting tactic of also playing as Cage. In the shiny trousers. Finally, you get to see the true power of Model 3, which is very shiny trousers. As far as I can tell, he's the first person to try this tactic. Like David yeah. says that Sarah appeared to be his Achilles heel, but... Mm. This is the first player to actually pick the exact same character as him and see if that helps. And if you're Simon, you're probably thinking like, fucking nailed that though, haven't I? Because he yeah. won't see that coming. It's risky though, isn't it? I mean, like this guy clearly knows that character inside out, but maybe he doesn't fight that character that often. Who knows? Who knows? Well, that's it. So Tetsujin in this fight gets to ring out, even though Simon was doing very well. But in that second round, 
it is all Tetsujin again. He is absolutely dominating it until Simon starts to make his comeback and does this fantastic flip over little jab in the back and gets a ring out of his own. Really felt like superb. Oh, you know what you're doing. You've played this game before. It's super calculated. You can see him lining up and he's trying to bait the Tetsujin towards the the subway edge. And he's really trying to bring him in. And he he knows there's this move that is a, a flip over. And even if you're guarding in that game, you take a bit of knockback. It's like high risk, but it, it's the first time in the entire game where things look like calculated on both sides. The previous ring out was, like I said, kind of basically weird, kind of janky, looked mostly accidental. This is someone who somewhat knows what they're doing, possibly for the first time in this entire challenge. And in an ideal world, that one apiece and someone that appears to have the measure of Tetsujin would make for a scintillating back and forth final Absolutely. round. Clash of the Titans. We get to that final round. Tetsujin lands the first blow and the second and the third <laughs> and the fourth and wins with a perfect. It's incredible, <laughs> isn't it? It's just such Absolute. a savage beatdown. Honestly, almost to like kind of a Zapruder film level assassination in this <laughs> yeah. third round. I do wonder, was the Tetsujin at that point playing around a bit? And so he's like, I'm going to try something a bit different in this fight. And because it became one apiece, he just went, yep, let's just get the job done. And that final round absolutely annihilated. It was impressive, but also brutal. Yeah, yeah. he absolutely scores him, doesn't he? I've played up to the cameras enough now. Now now it's time for me to go home. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe one of the producers whispered in his ear, like, can you please just at least make this last one like a little <laughs> bit interesting? It's in this post-match interview, and they bring this up in the book as well, because apparently like during those first few fights, they got really worried because they send a couple of kids up and they start getting hits on him and start taking his energy bars down. And they were like, oh no, this is going to fall apart before you've even really got started. And the reason for that is he explained in this post-match interview, if you're playing against experts, you know what they're thinking, you know what they're going to do. But playing against novices who are just mashing buttons, that's unpredictable. And yeah. you don't know how to fight against that. That was a, a masterful display, Mr. Tetsujin. The first thing I want to know is, was there any of our contestants who had Mr. Tetsujin worried? Oh, eh, to. When he was doing with experts, he's okay because he can predict what he gonna what he's gonna do. Yeah, he's used to playing against yes, experts. Yeah. But for example, if the person who has never done it play who hasn't played it before, mm-hmm. he can't predict what he's going to do. Yeah. So, he so it's more, more difficult against yes. the rubbish players. Actually, interesting point. Uh, was he ever uh, very tired? He said he can beat against 100 people still. Oh, right, play another 100. Ah, fantastic. Mr. Mr. No Sleep, Tezujin. <laughs> I've played against real esports pros at stuff and like first person shooters and things. And, and it's, it's something that has been said to me as. I'm the bad player, basically. I've played against these esports pros, and one of them was just like, "I, you don't play like a pro plays, and I don't know what you're going to do. And it's definitely the case. If you watch pro fighting game stuff, certainly these days, it's very sort of calculated and measured. You know, it's all to do with spacing and things like that. If you're not expecting someone to just be wildly matching that dodge button, dodging out of the way at like 
points where it doesn't make any sense whatsoever. I can fully, fully believe that he struggled with some of those matches. Not enough to lose, obviously, but at least enough to be sort of slightly thrown off by an, an exchange of, of sort of blows, as it were. And Dom does succinctly sum this up as just like, got it, crap players, harder to beat. Great. <laughs> yeah. Never mind ignoring the whole conceit of these are the 100 best players in the country. It's essentially going... Nah, these kids have never played this game before. <laughs> yeah. They do not know what they're doing. He doesn't do much to hide it. But then, like I said, the first time they, they drag up an eight-year-old, you're like, <laughs> these don't look like battle-hardened warriors, do they really? Nowadays, an eight-year-old would probably yeah. kill most of them. Fortnite champion. Little lad Larry in Series 8. True. Yeah, it's true. You destroy me. By this point, I don't mind that the, the, the conceit is kind of blown I still think just sitting there and beating, you know, playing that many rounds of the game. And I, as I said, I do believe he, he played those, those rounds that day. I still think that's a challenge. And actually, as someone who's had to put together videos and stuff, like I really appreciate this, the sort of storytelling of this entire episode. I think, it's, I think it's really, really good. It's not necessarily my favorite episode. I think it's really, really impressively put together as a sort of narrative and the, the roller coaster of like, will he, won't he get defeated and pulling in from the reviews and, you know, the idea that things are progressing throughout the advertising break, all stuff that what I contrast it to is the absolutely catastrophic Games Master Live episode from Series 3, where they literally cut off the end of the thing because they are genuinely live. It's just awful. It's one of the worst bits of TV I've ever seen in my life because you don't get to see the end of the thing that's been built up for the entire episode. Whereas this is, you know, obviously not actual live but it feels like a live event and they have this brilliant sort of up and down kind of roller coaster narrative which just really works for me not only does he win not only is he tetsujin 2.0 in the uk because he's beating 100 kids he gets a mega joystick that's got a massive base on it yeah i do love how they say it's a supersized joystick and you look at it and it's like no the joystick is exactly the same size it always is you've just put a bit more polyfiller around the outside and stuck a starfish on yes. it hey, the starfish is what adds to it like that's what makes it feel special i wonder if he still has that in his toilet i always wonder that i thought the same thing about tracy shaw earlier does she still have her games master golden joystick just tucked away in the loft somewhere why not we know robbie williams loves his so you know <laughs> But yeah, this Tetsujin, who I'd imagine until he got the phone call, had no idea what Games Master was. Probably has no idea about its sort of cultural resonance. I wonder if he still looks at that weird starfish and thinks, yeah, I really smashed those drama school kids to bits. I wonder if he's ever seen the episode. <laughs> Maybe not. Maybe. I mean, he doesn't speak English. so I think he probably has by this point because he's still tooling around out there. Is he? He was in a series of interviews for one of the Virtua Fighter anniversaries a few years back. And if you dig around online, you can find some fan translations where he's talking about being kind of this video game rock star in the 90s and That's being the cool. first of their kind. There's all six. Well, no, there's five out of six of them. I think one of them they literally couldn't find. But they talk about how it was to be that kind of rock star and also how... It kind of went a bit, the Warriors in every region had their own playing style, their own competitive style, and they were like almost turf wars. That's cool. Really weird stuff to read. I mean, you can tell from the leather jacket that he's kind of a big deal over in Japan. So uh, that's cool that he's still there and, you know, must be in his, I guess, like late 40s maybe, or I don't know how old he was in the show. I'd say mid-20s probably in the show. So he's probably late 40s to early 50s now. Yeah, yeah. That's wild, isn't it? It's wild that we're in a in an era now where these kind of like early sort of gaming celebrities or gaming esports pros are sort of getting on a bit now. This this generation is um 
is growing old and and its audience are kind of growing older with it. I find it really interesting that, again, going back to sort of the stuff we've lived through as a leap in technology and, and the stuff that Games Master kind of chronicled was such an awesome, awesome time. But it's it's wild to think that it's 25 years ago now that this episode aired. 25 years ago. But I hope that guy's still doing some video gaming stuff. There are fighting game players like Daigo and, and things like that in Street Fighter who are still competing at, at like a really high level. And I hope he's still hope he's still out there waiting for Virtual Fighter 6 to show up so he can smash another load of kids, destroy a load of drama school children, crush their dreams. I just like to think that's how he spends his holidays. He just goes, I'm just going to go to a different country, beat a bunch <laughs> of kids at video games. Bring me your best drama school students. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> I have a taste for them. <laughs> okay, that's it all. Next week's show, we've got two cricketers, Adam Holyoke and my own personal cricketing hero, Mr. Philip Tufnell. They'll be on the show, and all that remains for me is to ask you this question. If the government privatised Tracy Shaw, would she become overpaid and inefficient overnight? Given that we are recording this on, on a day where we've uh, just lost another prime minister, I don't think we should really comment on this whole uh, government outline that we have here about Tracy Shaw. <laughs> I feel like the next prime minister should be decided via... Tetsujin. <laughs> <laughs> the next Prime Minister should have to beat 90 MPs at Virtual Fighter. I think they should go the 100 drama school students. <laughs> yeah, That's how it's decided. They're already doing that with arts funding cuts. So Bit of politics. Bit of politics yeah, yeah, right. It got spicy. It's been, we're like a couple of hours in now and I've had a few beers. So I'm <laughs> but that is going to do it for this episode. Ash, uh, what did you make of it? It's a unique episode. We've had quite a few unique episodes in Series 6. Obviously, one infamous one that I think we are now thoroughly done with talking about. But this episode, it feels so special because, as we've talked about, it's that beginning of the idea of esports and gaming rock stars and celebrities. And it's not just like Dave from Blackpool who can take down all the other six formers at Street Fighter. This is a guy that they've flown from Japan where he routinely mullers hundreds and hundreds of competitors in live performances and on television. And now here he is in Atlantis being called Mr. Tetsujin bloke. Okay, it kind of falls apart when you get to that bit, but it's a very, very special episode of television. Mike, you're absolutely right. It's so well paced, so well put together. There is a real story and narrative here. I do love the fact that obviously when they recorded the live segments, they already knew they were going to fuck up the review segments. They were just like, what game do we have that no one will ever care about? What about that Capcom FMV game? Well, guess what? We're here 25 years later and you were wrong because we did care about it. And so did those guys in Israel. <laughs> it is probably one of my favourite spectacle episodes this year for actual gaming content because the longer it went on, the more people he beat. And then he started to take those few individual round losses. There was that moment of what if he makes it to 100 without losing? And then the closer he got... What if he makes it to 93 and loses one? What if he's literally just has that perfect stolen from him? And just the idea that maybe 99 or 100 would be the one to take him, particularly after the one round apiece on 100. Great television, really entertaining. Almost distracted me from the deeply uncomfortable 
personal relationship between Dominic and Dave that played out on screen. I, I kind of had mixed feelings on this episode because I, I loved it in a way because like you're right, like it's an incredible spectacle episode and it is a very memorable episode as well of, of series six. I think this idea of a guy beating a hundred kids, as we've kind of talked about as well, pacing and the way the show's put together is excellent. And, and, and I don't want to sound too Dave Perry on this one, but I do kind of wish it was taken a bit more seriously. And I think that's my only sort of gripe I have against this episode is that it's cack drama school kids playing this game and i kind of wish there was some more real competition in their forum that really could have added some extra level of drama in like the final 20 odd fights or so and i think dom not being there for some of it i also find to be a very jarring experience of just like why is it just that's dave that's there in the morning i mean we probably know why but it just feels weird that Dom isn't there. And it kind of because Dom is just like, well, I'm far too important to go there. It feels like Dom doesn't actually care about the challenge and care about the sort of spectacle of it. This was more like a Dave thing. So there's kind of like elements of it that I really don't like, but I can push that to one side because the end product is a very fun version. I think there is a better version of this episode. That doesn't mean the version we've got is bad because I think actually the version we've got is great. My take on it is... I think what I miss is the regulars. So even though I like, I love the gag where they, they pull out from the review section to come back. I do like the reviews. You know, I, I liked the, I like the magazine show format and it's very different from the existing magazine show format. But I think as I've grown older, I can get over the fact that there wasn't a feature, even though I loved the features. I just found them absolutely brilliant. I loved seeing Dom going out and doing weird, weird stuff. I can really appreciate it now as a piece of like crafted television and actually I, I sort of agree with you Luke it's a, it is almost a shame they didn't have brilliant players because the way it's constructed and the way it's put together and the, the sort of running order and the way it, it flows feels like event tv right even though it's pre-recorded and actually it's kind of a bit of a joke I think it's a real triumph for, from the production side like there's some good some good dom stuff in there I'm glad Dave got his slight moment in the sun he did deserve a bit of that based on his contribution but I think yeah more than any other episode of Games Master and this is a testament to the guys behind the scenes who are running it and managed to turn that into a narrative that that really worked as a piece of tv but it's a bit inside baseball to sort of talk about it from a kind of video producer point of view but as a as a content creator i really love the way it's all put together and stuff much like every episode we do and much like most reviewers we have to assign an arbitrary number to this episode a score out of 100 mike as our guest what percent are you thinking of feels like a solid mid 80s i'd say like an 86 let's go 86 it's good it's strong and it's probably the biggest experiment of this series and i think it's overall a success i was in that sort of mid 80s ballpark as well i think i'm gonna go slightly lower though because i was gonna go i had 84 written down my only reason for that is yeah i kind of wish they took this is slightly more seriously but also i think the celebrity challenge is a bit duff that's true actually that's a really good point yeah i almost rather it wasn't there and we just actually just had nothing but the Tetsujin challenge. Having said that, I think if it had been nothing but that, like that review section, that's kind of a nice little way to break up the action somewhat. So maybe the Stubborn Challenge is that kind of nice little breather. It adds that sense that this thing is progressing on yeah. going. I think it needed a it needed a, a celebrity challenge, but maybe that wasn't the greatest celebrity challenge. Yeah, it, it sort of if it had like a, a, a half decent celebrity challenge, I think I'd have been probably more into the eighty six ballpark. But yeah, I'm sticking with eighty four. Uh, but Ash, what say you? I mean, I was quite high on this episode and now you two have kind of like brought me, you give me some <laughs> sense of moderation. You pulled me back from reviewing this like it's Fox Hunt. <laughs> I'd give it 90%, but I'm worried that would upset Luke at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> 
I almost feel like you have to give it that. I'm going to go for 89. I'm going to stick with you in the 80s, but I just think for its place in history, like of being that first real introduction of the idea. I mean, we've had gaming champions before. We've had Danny Curley. We've had all these other people. We've had the team championships in Series 3. But, and I mean this with no disrespect to Danny or any of the other video game champions that have appeared on Games Master, this dude is a pro. And I think that, to me, is what pushes that score up, despite where the other trappings may let the episode down. Well, I think that's going to wrap it up for this episode. Mike, please, thank you so much for, for coming on to this show. Thanks for having me. The floor is yours to, to plug away as you please. If you would like to hear more from me, I'm at uh, Outside Xbox, which is a YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Side Xbox, that's where I tend to hang out. Uh, and if you want to see me being a bad paladin, I'm at youtube.com slash oxventure as well. Well, you can find us over on social media at underconsolepod on Instagram at under.console, or you can send us an email to feedback at underconsultation.com. Or you can give us some real-time feedback, some real-time interaction with us, with other listeners, with other fans of retro gaming, retro pop culture, movies, games and videos over on our Discord, details of which can be found in the show notes and on social media. And you can support this podcast monetarily over at patreon.com forward slash underconsolepod where you'll get next week's episode one week early and ad-free at the £5 level. You'll also get access to UCP Extra, which is this show format, but about other shows from the 80s and 90s and Underconsole Nation, which is our monthly community show. But at the £10 level, you get a little bit extra. Ash, what is that? At the £10 level, they get one of our golden joystick waggler mugs, which is stuffed with sweeties, retro trading cards, stickers, badges, and is wrapped up nice and tight and thrown right at your face. And a shout out to those £10 backers, Xanderthol, William, Tom, The Amazing Cliff, Super Sexy, David Fisher, Simon, Sean, Richard, Reese, Nick, Misha, Matty, Boom, Mark, Link, Kevin, Ian Williams, Ian Roberts, I am Cheadle, Harriet's Manga Girl, Gordon Dempster, Gordon Brands, David Palmer, Chrissy Two Sticks, Arcadia Wild Bill, Andy, Andrew, and Adam. Thank you all so much for listening. We will see you in seven days' time. Take care, everyone. Bye. Good night. <laughs>